Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit to come upon us, to rest upon us, to open our hearts that we might receive truth. Lord, again, our desire is not simply to acquire information, but to be changed. And we ask that our hearts would be so open in your spirit, speaking to us uh, so directly that our hearts are changed and that we will leave this place not only better armed and better equipped, but with changed lives. And Lord, we ask too that you would anoint not only uh, our ears, but my words. Uh, Lord, we did not come to hear me. We came to hear you. And we ask that in your mercy and your kindness that you would grant uh, that you speak uh, through me. And we ask these things for your honor and glory. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. If you're not sure what course you're in, you're in the spiritual warfare course. Uh, And what I want to do is we're going to look at a very broad spectrum of spiritual warfare. Most people have a rather limited understanding of spiritual warfare. It's much broader. Uh, It doesn't happen in certain parts of the world, but not others. Uh, It happens all around us, and it happens to us on a daily basis. John says in 1 John 5.19, We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So that pits us against not people uh, in the world, but it pits us against the one who is in control uh, of the world. Now, war was formally declared uh, in Genesis 3. Uh, In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, Uh, the Lord uh, came and he spoke to Adam and Eve but he also spoke to Satan who was responsible for their sinning and he says to the devil in verse 14 the Lord said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go and dust you will eat in all the days of your life And, now here is the direct statement, Satan was using the serpent uh, at the time that he did what he did. Now here is the direct statement to the enemy, and here is the declaration of war. Now the enemy had already done, declared war, here's God's response to it. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So you have right from the beginning uh, a declaration of war. And uh, oh, one other thing, how is the temperature in here? It is a little hot. Can it, uh, John? Can you control the temperature? Oh, oh, can you do that? Yeah. Now, let me just give you some pictures of where we are. Uh, if you read your newspapers, you will see spiritual warfare ongoing all the time. In this particular nation, you are seeing ever-increasing examples of the enemy uh, manifesting himself. He doesn't manifest himself directly, but he does through the things that we see going on in people's lives. 
Not too long ago, there was a story of a man that was murdered in Chicago, and the person that murdered him, uh, he was completely innocent. He hadn't done anything. He just happened to be walking down the street. The guy cut him up completely uh, in different pieces, stuffed him in a trash bag, and put him under the stairway of his apartment where he lived. Now, that's the example of demonic control going on. The sort of thing you're beginning to see now, road rage, sports rage, uh, airline rage, all these various manifestations of anger and rage uh, that were unheard of. Now, some of you uh, are pretty young, were born after 1975. I was born in 1944, and I grew up in a very different country. And the sort of things that I hear and see going on now were unheard of uh, in the times in which I grew up. And many of you would know that to be true too. One of the reasons for this is because God has removed his hand from the protection of our nation. And there are no such things as spiritual vacuums, which unfortunately the Supreme Court does not understand. You take God out, it doesn't become a vacuum, the devil moves in. And so we're beginning to see in our nation blatant examples of the enemy coming in. Uh, when I was uh, in the 60s, uh, I was a young man, and uh, in my early 20s, I was not a believer. I didn't become a believer until 1968. And before I was a believer, I was dabbled in the occult. Uh, I played around with the Ouija board. Uh, I had a guy that I worked with who fancied himself as a, uh, a medium who would conduct seances. I went to a couple of his seances. Uh, a lot of people think the Ouija board is just a game. It's not. It's Satan's territory. Astrology is Satan's territory. Uh, fortune telling is Satan's territory. Tarot cards, all this sort of stuff is Satan's territory. And when I was not a Christian before I was a believer, uh, I dabbled in that. Uh, in fact, I attended a seance where something came into the room. I don't know what it was, but it was something. Uh, playing around with the Ouija board. I, I did, many of you probably did that as kids. Hopefully you're not doing it now. But after I became a Christian, uh, uh, and I'd been a Christian about a year and a half, I was in the Navy and I was in Norfolk, and the devil paid me a visit one night in my room. I had a manifestation from the enemy. It scared me to death. I'd never had anything like that. I was laying in my room with my eyes closed and it was though somebody carrying a lantern had walked into the room. And there on the wall was what was popular in those days was the peace symbol. And it scared me. I didn't know what the heck that was. Uh, and I jumped up and grabbed my Bible and it all left. The next night, I was talking to a friend who was a Christian who uh, was very mature in the Lord, uh, and I explained what had happened, uh, and she was uh, quick to say, did you play around with the occult before you were a believer? And I said, well, define occult. And she proceeded to list the things I just listed, uh, Ouija board being one, and I said yes, and she said, you got into the devil's territory, and he... Uh, is the reason you had that. He is uh, harassing you. You've opened that ground up to him. You need to get out on your knees, renounce it, and plead the blood of Jesus. And I did. 
Uh, I had friends of mine in those days in Virginia Beach. Uh, Virginia Beach was an occult center for the United States. I don't know if it is now or not. I had two friends of mine who were heavily involved in reincarnation before they became believers. And after they became believers, uh, they independently of each other, they didn't know each other. They woke up one night, a hooded figure standing at the end of their bed. Now that's what happens when you play with the occult. Satan can't have them, but he can try and scare them. Now that's an aspect of spiritual warfare. But I want to say to you that spiritual warfare uh, is much, much broader than that. And we're going to get further into that. I tell that story because a lot of folks think that's what we're talking about with spiritual warfare. It is. It's part of it. But it's not all of it by a long shot. Some of the verses that we're going to be looking at, first of all, Ephesians 6.12 says, For our strength uh, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces uh, of evil in the heavenly realms. 2 Corinthians 3 uh, says this, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And then Ephesians 3.10 and 11, His intent, His being God, His intent was that now the church through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord I said that at the beginning that in Genesis 3.15 God declared spiritual war Jesus did the same thing when he stood up in the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke 4. And in Luke 4, uh, Jesus was given the scroll of Isaiah, which he was asked to read from by the synagogue ruler. He opened it, and this is what he read, beginning in verse 18, from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives who are the captives us we're the captives who's got us captive the devil so right there is a restatement of the declaration of war that God is bringing against Satan and Jesus is declaring in the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry the war is now on the invasion has hit And then he goes on to say, uh, to recover sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And you remember what happened in the synagogue. And I would suggest to you folks that Satan was in the synagogue there listening. And a few verses later, Jesus says something that aggravates them. And in a rage, they get up and try to kill him. And I would suggest that it is Satan enraging them trying to kill it as quickly as he can because Jesus has come in and reissued the declaration of war uh, yes sir without trying to interrupt you when he says then the recovery of the sight of blind we know that the world is veiled 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. right so he's 
he's actually going to lift that bale and they're going to see and uh, we're set free those who are down from Right. We're blind because Satan has rendered us blind. Satan in our sin has rendered us blind. But that particular verse is Jesus' statement of declaration of war against the enemy. And the enemy responds instantly. I mean, uh, and he is going on with it. When I was in uh, law school in the University of Texas, um, I used to relax. This is back in the 60s. This is right after the Civil War. And I used to relax. <laughs> some of you know history, some of you don't. <laughs> I joke around that I fought in the Civil War. Uh, that ain't so funny anymore. Young people look at me with great awe and respect. <laughs> One of them asked me if I had to go overseas. And I said, well, only if you count the Potomac. <laughs> but I don't think they know when it was fought. <laughs> in any event, it doesn't dawn on them that I wasn't in it. But in the 60s, what I would like to do, just as a break, now this will give you, this. Uh, no, most people would not want to do this, but I'm kind of strange. But in the 60s, when I was got sick of studying, I'd go over to the undergraduate library. And the thing that I really liked to do uh, to relax was I'd pull out the Life magazines, and they have them bound in three-month volumes. Uh, and you know, Life magazine used to. How many remember Life? Life used to. You just dated yourself. Life <laughs> used to come out once a week, and they would they would bind these Life magazines in three month uh, sections. And so what I would do is I would go over to the undergraduate center, and I would pull out Life magazine uh, binders of three months at a whack from the early 1940s involving World War II. And I'd start thumbing through these life magazines. And it, for me, it was like time travel. I would completely forget where I was. But one of the things that you pick up when you go through these old life magazines from 1943, 44, 42, during the period of time of World War II, is here is a society that is totally geared for war. I mean, even the advertisements have something to do with the war. General Motors is saying, right now we're not putting out Oldsmobiles, we're making tanks for the troops. But when the war is over, we'll be back with better cars than ever. Even the Ipana toothpaste commercials had to do with the war. Now, some of you don't remember Ipana toothpaste, but I do. But it was, whether it was... Uh, the shampoo commercials so that your man when he comes back on leave will just love your hair or whatever it is everything was geared for war and one of the problems that I think we have uh, is that many Christians are not geared for war we're as much in a war right now as they were in World War II more so because at least the front lines were defined and they were outside of the continental US but the front lines in this war are not defined and they are all around us. And a tremendous number of believers are picnicking on the battlefield. Yes, sir? Picnicking on the battlefield. That's why I'm here. Oh, okay. The statement that you made at the beginning that when there's a vacuum, that the enemies will come in and take it over. And if you live as long as you and I have, 
That's what is bothering me. Yeah, absolutely. One of the greatest problems that the church has in America with regard to spiritual warfare, and I'm not sitting here pointing at you, I fit this definition too, and that is the issue of complacency. And the enemy counts on it. Uh, and so many of us are complacent. We're affluent. Uh, life is easy. All kinds of things. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to see. And he can wage this warfare around us and over us. And we don't even realize what's going on. Interestingly enough, folks, and we'll see this a little later as we get into it. The war that we're talking about is, is a heavenly war that has been going on and will the Bible gives us pictures of this but even human warfare World War two World War one the Civil War whatever they are pictured they are a extension of the spiritual war that is going on in the heavens they are a reflection the fact that we have wars is an indication of a spiritual war overall that is going on uh, in the atmosphere around us uh, and so one of the things that is crucial is, is that in dealing with spiritual warfare, we have to know what it is and where we are involved with it, uh, and we have to wake up. And, I would, and I'm not against voting, and I'm not against uh, being active in everything uh, in terms of being uh, responsible citizens in our government and all that sort of thing. We should be but that is not the answer and we will look at what the answer is and it brings our government into it and we'll see that too but uh, that is not the answer uh, we should not be sitting around criticizing the leaders of our nation we should be on our knees interceding for them and we'll see when we get into Daniel 10 why that is absolutely uh, critical uh, to us now we've got several objectives I want us to hopefully reach uh, the today. The first one is to, is to understand the war and what's behind it. Now we've already started that objective. The second one is is to understand Satan, the adversary, his allies, and his tactics. The third is to recognize the power and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news to this whole thing. Is the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our commander in chief. If you will, if the book of Ephesians is very similar to the book of Joshua in this sense, in that it is a military book. It will give you a picture in detail of our commander-in-chief. It will give you a picture of the battlefields on which spiritual warfare occurs, and it will explain to you how to use our equipment and weapons against them. And so we're going to spend a lot of time uh, in Ephesians. Another thing that we want to do is to understand, this is another objective, is to understand what's your part in the battle, in the war. Uh, also, we want to understand, and this is very critical, and this is where a lot of people don't pick up on it. What we want to understand is when are you being attacked? When is he coming against you? And then the, the last thing we want to know is to understand how to use our weapons, how to resist the attack, and how to take the offensive. Uh, and I will tell you right now, the only way we're going to do that, uh, first of all, is to uh, 
be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, there's no room for half-heartedness. Christianity, folks, is not a part-time job. It is a lifestyle. Uh, it is your life. Uh, and so we can no longer treat it as a part-time job. And if you have been complacent, and I appreciate your acknowledging that, uh, because I'm guilty of it, but if you've been complacent, if you haven't understood, my prayer is when you come out of here, you'll see things very differently uh, than when you came in. Okay, let's start right off the bat. Begin uh, look at the historical perspective behind this. Colossians, for example, uh, just give us a picture of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Colossians uh, 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, now this is an important phrase to notice, for by Him all, not some, all things are created, were created, both, and again, another critical phrase, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions uh, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Visible and invisible, that phrase refers to dimensions. All things were created by him and they were created for him. And the things in heaven on earth are visible and invisible. And he goes on to say where the thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. The visible and the invisible refers to various dimensions. Now there are four dimensions in our world, right? Height, depth, what? Width, time uh, is a dimension. Uh, there are those dimensions in our world. Incidentally, some scientists believe there are as many as ten dimensions. Uh, that's theory, of course. They can't prove that. Uh, how many of you have ever read C.S. Lewis's The Narnia Tales? Well, if you read book five, The Magician's Nephew, I think it is, uh, in that story, there's all these pools. Uh, they're sitting on the, at the outset, they're sitting on the ground, and there's all these pools around them. And if you jump into this pool, it will take you into a completely different dimension than if you jump into that one, it'll take you into another one. Uh, Lewis, in his fiction writing, was anticipating really what some scientists think is the case. That there's, in other words, there are alternate universes. In the other universe, a freight train could be passing through this room right now and we wouldn't know it, that sort of thing. Uh, that's all theory as far as I know. I don't think they've established any invisible freight trains coming through, but they do theorize that there may be uh, at least 10 dimensions. Let me say this. However many they are, according to Colossians 1, 15, 16, they were all created by Jesus. And if he created them, then he has control of them. Uh, and read Ephesians, look at Ephesians 1 here. Let's read that. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Uh, last part of 19 his power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places now here you want to see the, um, the extent of Christ's rule and authority far above and notice the expansiveness of it the inclusiveness of it nothing is excluded from this 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Everything is under his feet. Everything is under his control. There is nothing that is outside of his control and outside of his dominion. And that's the good news, folks, because whether you've been picnicking or not, you are still in the control and under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps, if you've been picnicking, the reason you're not having, you haven't suffered tremendous damage is notwithstanding that he has surrounded you with himself uh, and protected you. Uh, and all of us are in his protection. Uh, Stuart Briscoe has an interesting statement. He says that the power that God used to raise Christ from the dead and see everything, put everything under his feet in this age and in the age to come is a definition of the power of God that is available to us in Christ Jesus. And he says the only time a Christian needs to worry is when he steps into a situation bigger than the resurrection. <laughs> It ain't going to happen. There is no situation uh, that's going to be bigger than the resurrection. Now, uh, we know, I talked about the four dimensions, but we know that there is another dimension, at least. At least Christians know this. And that's the fifth dimension. And I'm not talking about the singing group from the 60s and the 70s. The fifth dimension is part of the invisible. Remember, Jesus created all things visible and invisible. The fifth dimension is the part that is invisible. It is what the Bible calls the heavenly realms. And it is inhabited by some powerful beings who have the ability to enter into our dimensions. And those heavenly beings are both good and evil. Now, let me just give you uh, a quick uh, history of where is, incidentally, where is heaven? Up there? Not really. (laughs) No. No, it is another dimension. It is a physical place, though. It is another dimension, but a physical place. Because Jesus is in heaven as the Son of Man, and before he rose into heaven, he said, Feel me, touch me, I have flesh and bones, I'm not a spirit. He was a physical being in a physical body. He is in heaven. The point is, heaven is a physical place. Well, if heaven not up there, why did Jesus ascend up there? I would suggest to you the only reason that he went up and was covered, uh, you know, taken up in a cloud is because it was necessary for the apostles to understand this is it, he's gone. Because during that 40 days, he would be in and out. You know, they'd be in a, in a room and wham, suddenly the Lord is among them. Uh, you know, and this went on for 40 days. But once he went up and was uh, received by a cloud, incidentally, if you want to see the other side of that, of the ascension, the the apostles watched him go up and a cloud uh, took him out of their sight. You want to see the other half of what happened, go to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where Daniel says, I saw in a vision one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and he was brought to the uh, Ancient of Days and presented before his throne, and he was given authority in dominion. So what the apostles saw from this side, Daniel saw from the other side. But the point was, 
Not that heaven is an up place. The point was, is that Jesus is gone and the promise of the Holy Spirit is coming and that's what they need to begin to focus on. Because otherwise you'd say 60 days later, he said, anybody seen the Lord lately? I mean, you know, up until five weeks ago, Tuesday, he was in that. No, he is gone. The Holy Spirit is coming and we will become the evidence of who he is. We will be his body. So where is heaven? Let me suggest this dimension, folks. It is a dimension of the invisible, but it is a dimension that is all around us. It is not out there 50 million miles north of Jupiter. You do not have to, when you pray to God, get his attention because he's way up there. He is right here. You know what it says in Ephesians 2.6? It says that God raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places with Jesus. So we're not saying, Jesus! We're on the throne next to him. We just lean over like John did at the Last Supper where John laid his head against his breast. And he could talk. Uh, the great Methodist missionary, E. Stanley Jones, made this statement. If you were to reach out to God, physically, with your hand, you're going to reach out to God, you've reached too far. He's all around you. The invisible realm, heaven, is all around us. And God, with his people, is all right. Is he here right now? Yes. Well, you know he is. You know? Heaven is right here in this room. Where's the Holy of Holies? Here. It's right here. Wherever he is. And he has brought us in to the Holy of Holies. And so it is all around us. And he is all around us. And he says over and over and over. And a good place to look at Psalm 34. My face is always toward my children. If you are righteous and you are in Christ. And we'll look at this in a minute. His face is He was able to. I tell a story a lot of times. I've told it to Sunday school. So some of you that are in the class. You have to disregarded. One of my favorite stories is uh, during the Civil War, before my time, Abraham Lincoln, uh, during the Civil War, people wanted to get in to see Lincoln for all kinds of reasons. They wanted appointments to offices. They wanted all kinds of stuff. And on an average day, the line would line up to get into not only the White House, but to get into his office, they'd line up down the hall, uh, down the stairs, out into the driveway, people wanting to see Lincoln for whatever reason they wanted. And they had two Union soldiers standing there uh, on either side of the door to his study, bayonet sticks, and you did not get in to see Lincoln unless Lincoln asked to see you. He was at the time the most powerful man in the United States in a nation that was on its way to becoming the most powerful nation in the world. And you did not get in to see Abraham Lincoln. Except two people. Two little guys named Tad and Willie. They were Lincoln's boys. And when they wanted to see Dad, they went right past that line, right up the stairs, went right up to the guards. The guards would wink, open the doors, 
and then they would go. Lincoln would stop what he was doing, get out on the rug, and start playing with That's our dad in heaven. And he is available to us 24-7. Didn't he lose Willie right before the end of the war? No, he lost Willie in 1862, in December of 1862, right before Christmas. Yeah. And Tad died uh, as a young man, but after Lincoln died, yeah. Yeah, but it was a, uh, it was a, a beautiful picture of our entrance with the Father, which Jesus got for us. Now, how do we get that? Well, let me just explain a couple of things real quick. Uh, when man was first created, uh, he was given uh, authority over the visible, physical world. If you go back to Genesis 1.26, um, God gives a statement of the authority that he gave to man. Uh, and that says, then God said, let us. You notice the let us, that's plural, folks. <laughs> There's the, He's three persons let us he's not talking about the angels the angels don't have creative ability let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing uh, that creeps on the earth man was one of God's most unique creations because he was created in the image of God he had moral righteousness he had the ability to think. He had the ability to reason. God gave him the ability to rule over God's uh, creation. Uh, but he is not the strongest in the world. The beings in the other dimension, the angelic beings, are for the most part stronger uh, than we are. Uh, but uh, they are, And they're superior in many ways. You look over in Hebrews 2, uh, 6... Hebrews 2.6, quoting from Psalm 8, But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember uh, him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Notice, we're just a little bit lower in terms of ability and power. uh, We don't have the ability to do certain things that angels do. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So God, by his definition, made us, made men, uh, lords of creation. Uh, And then the angels are beings that dwell in the invisible dimensions. They're more powerful. For example, one angel did in 185,000 Assyrian troops uh, in the book of Isaiah overnight. Uh, So they have superior intellect and wisdom. And, but, and they are also not limited in time and space. For example, we see the angel Gabriel in Daniel 8. Uh, he delivers a message to Gabriel, uh, to Daniel. And then in Luke 2, we see Gabriel uh, delivering a message 500 years later uh, to the Virgin Mary. So he is not in any way impacted by time or space. He lives outside of that continuum. Uh, and we also know from what we read in Ephesians 6 about these angels uh, that they are beings that are created by Jesus they are under his authority I mean that's what we know from Colossians 1 from uh, from Ephesians 6 uh, we also know that there are various levels of authority and levels of power 
within that dimension among angels. Remember when we read Ephesians 6, 12, it says, For we war not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the spiritual forces in dark places. He lists four levels of authority uh, of demonic beings that we're warring against. Uh, so in the heavenly realms, we do have also authority and levels and divisions of authority. If you look in Daniel 10, you will see the messenger, Daniel 10, about uh, 11, 12, 13, you will see the angelic messenger who came to Daniel and he said, hey, I was, as soon as you started praying three weeks ago, uh, God dispatched me with a message, but the prince of Persia, that's not the king of Persia, that's the demonic prince uh, who fits one of those four categories in Ephesians 6, 12, and we'll look at that later. It was the demonic prince who was controlling Persia with study in the heavenly realms for three weeks until the prince of Israel, the archangel Michael, came and set him free. So what you see in that brief little picture is on both sides in the angelic realm, you have levels of authority and divisions of authority and power. And of course that filters out down in the human level too because we have all of that sort of thing uh, as well. You're keeping your eye on the clock. Okay. Who's going to... If I see you do this... Okay, it means you can take a break. The rest of them stay here. Now, let's take a... Um, make sure I'm not skipping something here. Now, one of the most powerful uh, of the created beings in the other dimension in the invisible realm is a being who was originally named Lucifer that we now call Satan. And uh, I'm not telling anybody here anything they don't know. He's quite malevolent. He's quite evil. He has temporary control of this world. Uh, I quoted 1 John 5.19 when he first came. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, which says the God of this world, small g for God, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the glorious gospel. Uh, Ephesians 2.2 2 says this. Uh, it says, In which you were formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then also Luke 4.6 uh, will say this. Uh, says, and the devil said to him, this is when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil, says, and the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now the second part of that statement, I give it to whomever I wish, is not true. But the first part of it, has been handed over to me, is true. It was handed over to him by Adam. So he has the, uh, control over that. That's the way that Satan took control of the world. God gave authority over his creation to man to rule on his behalf in communion with him. And man, us folks, we were to be containers of his spirit. Now we were on sort of a probation, if you will. Uh, I don't think the Holy Spirit dwelt in Adam at the time. Uh, but we could interact between the dimensions in fellowship with God and we get that picture in the Garden of Eden 
man was given a will and the right to exercise his free will in his own discretion. And all of these things are indications of the fact that we are in created in God's image. 1 John 4, 8 and 4.16 both of 1 John say uh, that God is love. And by that, what it, we find is that God is absolutely selfless, willing to give everything for the sake of others without expecting anything in return. <clears throat> in fact, the New Testament calls that agape. Jesus, when he confronts Peter in John 21, after the resurrection, and remember he says, Peter, do you love me? And what he says to him, he uses the word agape. He says, Peter, do you love me with the same love God had for you such that he gave everything for you, expecting nothing in return? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Of course, he switched the word. He used phileco instead of agape because he knew he didn't have that kind of love. Basically, Peter said, Lord, you're a fond friend. But the love of God is a love that is prepared to sacrifice all for his creatures without requiring a response back. In other words, it is an unconditional uh, love. It is the way in which the Trinity functions within itself. We just get pictures, little bits and pieces in the Scripture of the Trinity. But what the Trinity does, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are continually exalting one another, glorifying one another, giving themselves for one another. And the result of constantly exalting one another is indescribable joy. In fact, you'll see that a picture of it in John 17. Jesus says, Father, now I have glorified you on earth, now I glorify your son. It's, you know, I've glorified you, each glorifying the other, each giving to the other. See, our nature, our sin nature is exactly the opposite. It's gimmick, 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 gimmick. Even when I do good, I've got a lot of ulterior when God does good, He has no ulterior motive. God benefits those He loves without secret motives for a hidden agenda. We've always got an agenda. But this constant exalting one another, loving one another, giving to the other, the result of that is absolute glory and joy, which is the reason why He created us. I've heard People say, God created us because he needed fellowship. No, he didn't. <laughs> he's, he's infinite. He doesn't need anything. Why did he create us? In order that we might enter into the same joy of exalting him and exalting one another and seeing the joy increase. And uh, you that have been in the class, you know what I also like to say. Uh, you receive joy when you see someone else enjoy. You know, how many times have you heard beautiful music and you, you say to your friend or your spouse, come here, come here, come here, listen to this, listen to this. And when you see them enjoying it, your joy increases, doesn't it? Or you see a beautiful sunset, come here, come here, come here, look, 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 look. You know, and they're, they say, oh, it's beautiful. Your joy increases because their joy increases. That's a picture of the way it was working in the Trinity and what he had in mind when he created us. Not that he needed us, but that he might expand the joy in the glory. You see what we lost? It makes you sick uh, when you think about it. Uh, and Jesus says this in John 15, doesn't he? He says, I have told you these things 
that your joy might be full. Uh, and John says the same thing in 1 John, right at the very beginning, 1 John. He says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And we write these things to you that your joy might be full. Uh, all of these things, you know. Joy, goodness, greatness, glory, all these things were what he had in mind when he created us, that we would share in these things uh, with him. Okay. Getting close. Now, um, when we sinned, of course, we cut ourselves off from this spirit of joy, of light, of life, of communion, all of these things we lost. Um, I'll share with you what I shared with the class last Sunday. There are some indications uh, down through the centuries that Adam, before he sinned, uh, had abilities uh, that he doesn't have today. You know, I think, any of you scientists or doctors, I think my understanding is that we only use about 4% of our brain today, and some of us 3%, I think. But what, what, if you had full use of your brain, what would you be able to do? Well, if you've ever read the book Twilight Labyrinth by uh, uh, George Otis Jr., at one point in the book, he talks about the fact that there are evidences down through history of residue of abilities that, uh, that are found in men and women periodically that uh, may have been evidence of what Adam and Eve were capable of before they sinned. A good example is a savant. Uh, Autistic people sometimes have this unique ability. There were two twins who were savants. Um, They were able to calculate instantly. Uh, They tested them by taking a box of wooden matches which they dumped out on a table, and they just bounced everywhere. Well, both brothers, as soon as the last match, match bounced, both brothers said 111. And they counted them up, and it was 111 matches. And what George Otis Jr. is suggesting is, these may be, he's not saying they are, he doesn't know. We have no way of knowing. Some of these things are obviously demonically inspired now. But he is suggesting that some of the things that we can see down through history uh, would indicate that Adam and Eve may have had superior abilities that when they sinned, they lost. And I'll give you a list of them if you want them. No, it's time to take a break. We're going to something. Anybody interested? Yeah. Even the ones that heard it before. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Let me suggest... Uh, I'll just list them for you. That um, Adam commanded a virtually uh, unlimited and flawless memory. Now that would leave you guys in trouble with your wives a lot of times. That they had the ability to communicate with other species. That would make sense if they're going to be lords of creation. Uh, that they had the ability to perform instant and accurate analysis. Uh, That they could see remote places and events mentally. And also the ability to see long distances. Uh, That they could transfer their thoughts into other minds without speaking. 
anybody know of any examples of that? My wife can read my mind <laughs> just like that. But there are people share goats. <laughs> there are people that do have the ability, uh, you know, and some of it I think is demonically inspired. Uh, but there have been cases down through the centuries of people that seem to have that ability. Another one is the ability to manipulate external objects with the mind. Um, another one, instantly teleporting self to other locations. Now we have a picture of that, Acts 8, after Philip um, um, baptizes the Ethiopian and says, in this case it wasn't Philip doing it, the Spirit of the Lord snatched him away and he found himself at Azotus. The implication being we have teleportation uh, going on. Does the devil do that? It's very likely that stuff like that that goes on today, if it goes on, a lot of that's demonic. But the suggestion is that man, in his sinless capacity, uh, was capable of doing these things and probably other things, and it would make sense that they shut down after sin. Can you imagine us sinners being able to do some of the stuff uh, that they're talking about uh, in that situation? Um, my personal opinion, folks, and chalk it up for what it is worth, and it is worth nothing, but my personal opinion was that God's intent uh, in making us lords of his creation was not limited to this planet, but that He would, we would have progressed out into the solar system, into the galaxy, and populated and controlled together with him all of this vast universe that he had made. Because think about it. If there's no sin, how long could we stay on this planet with no death, no war, no disease? Now that's just my opinion. That's worth nothing. There is no scriptural basis for what I'm saying. There is no scientific basis for what I'm saying. It's just that one time I got to wondering, why is this vast universe out here? And I would suggest to you it is empty. It was waiting for us. But that's just my opinion. I have no way of knowing. All of that shut down because we bought into what Satan wanted us to do. Uh, he hated God. Uh, and he uh, hated those who were cherished by him. Uh, and let's look at a picture of Satan in Ezekiel uh, 28. start in verse 11. Incidentally, when we sinned, folks, we fell under his dominion. We fell under Satan's dominion. That's why Ephesians 2.2 2 says that they are under the control. Um, those that have sinned are under the control of Satan. Uh, Jesus says in John 14.27, the prince of this world comes, 1430, the prince of this world comes, but he has nothing in me. Why? He hadn't sinned. He wasn't under his authority. He wasn't under his dominion. Uh, but when we fell, when we sinned, we fell under Satan's authority and have been under that authority. Uh, give me two minutes. Been under that authority uh, for millennia. Everybody got Ezekiel 28? I've been talking and I haven't been doing it. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. All right, now, the specific 
statement is to the king of Tyre. But as we begin to read the description of the person he's talking about, it's very clear he's not talking to a human being. He is talking about the spiritual power behind the throne uh, of the king of Tyre. Look at the description. Uh, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were, and here's a critical word, created. And the word used in Hebrew for created here is the word bara. And bara means to create something out of nothing. As opposed to Adam and Eve who created, and they were the Hebrew word for creating Adam and Eve in Genesis is asah. And asah means to create and pull together out of existing material. But in Satan's case, it is barah, created without prior substance being in effect something out of nothing. He is created. This is Satan that we're talking about. Here is a picture of him in the garden. He is a creature of incredible beauty. Uh, And then uh, verse 14 begins to tell us not only first, verse 13 told us what he looked like. Verse 14 begins to tell us what his authority was. Uh, Verse 14, you were anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Don't you wonder what that was? Walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And by the abundance of your trade you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Here was a creature of incredible beauty with tremendous authority. Guardian cherub suggests that he controlled access of other creatures to the throne of God. He had the absolute highest authority of any created being uh, in the heavenly realms. Uh, Well, we need to stop now. Uh, It is 10 o'clock. Why don't we take about, oh, five to ten minutes. Okay, folks, let's get back. Do you want to do 10 Give me right on the hour if you would. All right, we're right in the middle of talking about the enemy. Uh, incidentally, the idea that Satan has horns and a tail and carries a pitchfork, that's from his ad campaign. <laughs> that is not the way he is. The New Testament refers to him as an angel of light. You would be amazed at how many times at the outset or the founding of a cult, the cult leader, the Mormons would be a good example of this, see an angel of light. Moroni or whoever it was that gave Joseph Smith the gold tablets was an angel of light. One of the uh, one of the occult leaders in America in the 19th century up through 1945 in Virginia Beach was a guy named Edgar Casey. Anybody ever heard of Edgar Casey? He was a clairvoyant. Uh, he was a strong Presbyterian. He would go into trances and give out messages. Uh, and the more he got into it, the more his messages became dark. Began to talk about reincarnation, all of that stuff. Whenever you talk to somebody who believes in reincarnation, this is what you want to say to them. 
I don't believe in it now, and I didn't in any of my previous lives. <laughs> but Edgar Casey's testimony in the 1880s as a little boy, he was confronted by an angel of light who gave him this gift. It is down through the centuries you will see that. Satan is characterized uh, as an angel of light. What happened uh, is that his, Ezekiel says that pride and violence was found within him and he led a rebellion of angels in which he apparently a third of the angelic host went with him and fell uh, with him you get a picture of that in Revelation 12 where it says the red dragon's tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky typically stars are used uh, to describe angels in terms of symbology uh, and we know from, uh, for example, Isaiah uh, 14, uh, verses 12 through 17, gives us a picture of the way in which this pride that was found in Satan manifested itself. And there are five I wills. I will exalt myself. I will. I will ascend above the heavenly mountain. I will take the throne of God. I will. I will. I will. That is what I call the devil's seat. And when man fell... Uh, man began immediately to manifest the devil's seed, the self, the I will. When God comes to Adam and he says, what have you done? What does he say? It's the woman you gave me. Oh, right there. That's the devil's seed. Uh, not me. Him. Blame shifted. It's me. It's all about me. Uh, what did Eve say? Not, well, the serpent tricked me and I ate. Well, that's true, but we're passing the buck. Uh, and so we began to manifest uh, the devil's seed ourselves uh, Revelation 12 uh, 7 through 9 will give you a picture of what is what he's like too uh, let me just read that real quick it says and there was war in heaven Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them and the great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Notice he doesn't deceive some of the world. He deceives the whole world. Uh, and he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Uh, so his nature is one of absolute pride. Uh, that is the original sin. That is the sin of the devil's seed that most often or constantly manifests in us. It's all about me. My focus is on me. If I help a little old lady off across the street, yeah, I'm trying to help her, but I'm also trying to feel better about me. The focus is constantly on me. Some psychologists will tell you there's no such thing in human behavior of a true altruistic act. But there is always a motive of self-help somewhere behind it. Um, Paul says this in uh, 1 Timothy 3.6. He's talking about how to deal with a new convert. He says, and not a new convert, lest he become conceited. And, in other words, don't put a new convert in leadership, lest he become conceited and fall in the condemnation incurred by the devil. And then one of the things that was significant to Satan is that in the spiritual realm, folks, and we're going to see this a little more in detail, in the spiritual realm, authority is everything. Power without authority is nothing. He wanted authority. He wasn't grasping for power. He wanted all authority. Now, 
he had the highest authority he could have, but he wanted more authority. Uh, and so what happened was, uh, when he was cast down, God is, doesn't play games with people. He doesn't say, uh, well, you're in authority, I'm taking that away from you. He retained his authority, but the authority he now has is he has authority uh, all those who sin against God, including the angels and including men and women, which I just said uh, earlier. Now, uh, the interesting thing about Satan, which is different from us, is Satan rebelled of his own free will. It says that sin was found within him. That is not true of us. Sin was not found within us. We were seduced from the outside. In Satan's case, it originated within him. There's a big difference between him and us. Uh, we were brought. We would not have come into it on our own. We were brought into it. Uh, we were suckered into it. When did Satan's fall occur, which we just read? Well, I would suggest to you that it is after God created the heaven and the earth uh, and the foundation of the earth. Uh, Job 38, 4 and 7 says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. So Satan and the demonic powers that fell with him were there before the fall shouting for joy at the creative work that God had done. Uh, and the suggestion also is that Satan fell, however, before Adam was created. Genesis 3.1 says now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. The beasts were created before uh, Satan, which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, uh, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree. Uh, and what was Satan's purpose in seducing uh, Adam and Eve? Well, of course, he hated God and he hated anything precious to God. But he was also trying to extend this authority that he, what authority he had he had authority over demonic powers that fell with him because he was the highest of all so he retained that authority at least over those who fell with him he was now trying to extend his authority uh, over Adam and Eve and over God's creation uh, and in the time that he before he fell he was known as Lucifer which means light bearer not surprising that he's now called an angel of light. Uh, now uh, he is called uh, Satan. And Adam and Eve were deceived and brought in under his authority uh, when they sinned. And the way in which the sin occurred was he, man was tempted to exercise his self-will uh, in disobedience to God. In other words, he decided he wanted to be God or like God. Now here's something very significant and it's resident in all of us. God created us to be lords of creation. God did not create us to be God. And when we sinned and exercised self-will, uh, in other words, God gave us the right to exercise self-will. We couldn't love him if we didn't choose to love him. The essence of love is not a feeling, folks. It is a choice to love. Now, the feeling comes with it, but love itself is a choice to love. If Jesus had been trussed up in chains and dropped to earth so he could be sacrificed, we wouldn't be able to say he loved us. He didn't have a choice. 
Jesus came and set us free because he had a choice. It is in that that we see the love of Christ. Man was created with free will because God wanted him to choose to be obedient and to love him. We used our free will to choose to elevate ourselves above him. Here's the problem for us besides cutting ourselves off. The result is this. God did not make us to be gods. We tried to do exactly that. That's what we tried to be. We tried to exercise our rights and authority above him. You see the devil's seed in this? Sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. The problem is, is since we were not made to be God, but that's what we tried to be, and we aren't, we have this deep sense of inadequacy in us. Because we're adequate to be lords of creation. We're not adequate to be God. And since that's what the desire in us is to be, is to be God and to take his place, there is this deep sense of inadequacy in us because we can never be that. And we never will. And that's what the sin nature wants, to elevate itself above everything else. But we weren't created for that. Therefore, we're constantly a sense of inadequacy. Every one of you has it. And everybody in the world is busy trying to prove that he's adequate. And you never will. Because every one of you is inadequate. All these people busy trying to prove that they're as cool as the guy next to them is pretending to be. You know, uh, you know, gal that uh, really uh, had an interesting uh, statement, and, and I think uh, it, it's fascinating. That's Madonna. Uh, Madonna said, "I struggle and I strive to be the one who performs the best performance, and I seek after the applause because when they come, I feel in myself that I am adequate." And the next morning, it's gone, and I have to start all over. <laughs> Why do we want to be president of General Motors? Why do we want to be whatever we're seeking to be? Because we want the adulation of people that will convince us in our minds that we're adequate. I mean, even hobos have that sense. You know, I'm king of the road. I may not be head of GM, but I'm king of the road. Yeah, it's this, whatever level it is, it's this deep sense to convince ourselves we're adequate. We aren't. We never will be. But in Jesus, it's okay. Because He's our adequacy. See, when we come into Jesus, the Hebrew writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 4, we enter into rest. What is that rest? It's not inactivity. It is entering in to the rest of realizing you are inadequate and it's okay. And I've ceased to strive to prove that I am something that I'm not and never will be. Anybody here uh, yes. resonate with you? Yes. I, I had a Labrador and I worked at Cabela's and you would they would bring in these dogs that were trained to hunt. And my first thought was, I'm going to train my dog to hunt because I like to hunt. I actually bird hunt maybe once, maybe twice a year, and it's normally dove. But, you know, I had a Labrador, I wanted to hunt. 
but seeing these dogs and the way that they are trained, I mean, you, they're just like robots. They can walk down and, and, and you can walk up and pet them and they can have no emotion whatsoever. And in seeing this and in, in uh, you know, kind of conflicting with my wife on the way we're going to train this dog, I decided I wanted this dog to have its own will. And so... You still yeah. got all your fingers? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted her to, to love me and, to, and for me to love her. Mm -hmm. And in spite of the fact that every now and then she does something that is bad, you know, it, it might take a second to go, but you, love, but you still love the dog. And the dog still loves you. And there's a different, different, there's a different relationship than it is with, you know, somebody that is, is trained this dog as a, as an actual professional hunting dog. Uh, in that sense, in spite of what Lucifer did, do you think God loves Lucifer? Oh man. <laughs> uh, we don't have time to get to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah that takes us way off. Uh, I'm not, I mean, it, 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 you know. I wouldn't have any idea. I don't know. I know this that Satan is permanently unredeemable. Right. Uh, exactly. You know, he is not going to redeem fallen angels. I think one of the reasons is because the sin originated with them. In our case, God is not going to let Satan destroy the ultimate work that he did in creating man. And he is going to redeem him. Well, let me suggest this to you folks. The sooner you understand you're inadequate and you start resting in Jesus, the happier you'll be. Uh, because, and here's the good thing about this. It's your inadequacy that God uses to perfect his strength and power. See, Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 9 and 10, he says, God, you know, he had asked God to remove this thorn in the flesh, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, therefore will I boast in my weaknesses, in my stresses, in my insults, in my persecutions, in my difficulties. Uh, you know, I'm a trial lawyer. Most trial lawyers are aggressive, um, full of initiative, sharp, killer instinct, all those things. I'm none of those things. I've suffered with insecurity all my life. Uh, I don't like fights. Uh, I don't like to do that sort of thing. And God has me in the one place that is exactly the opposite of what <laughs> And yet I have seen the great and mighty things in the ground. Why? Because once I got to the point where I said, I'm not adequate. I don't measure up to the opponents that I used to come up against. There's a tremendous verse in Psalm 146, 5. How blessed is he whose hope is the God of Jacob. And I am finding that to be the case. I have entered into rest, folks. I am no longer trying to prove what a hot shot I am. Because I know I'm not. And the result is, he says, good, I've been waiting for you to come to that understanding. Now I can get something done through you. It is so wonderful to realize who you really are. Go read Hebrews 4. Uh, you know, it's a tremendous statement. And I'm off the track a little bit. But 
That's what happened to us when we sinned. We all have this deep sense of, in addition to our sin and our rebellion, we all have this deep sense of inadequacy and we're all trying to prove to ourselves we're not. Give it up. You are. You are always going to, in this life, in this body, you are always going to be inadequate and God says it's okay uh, because I will use it to glorify myself. It's just amazing the way he does these things. Uh, so if you've been struggling with that, I hope this was helpful today because it took me 25 years of practicing law to get to that point. And the way I got to it one time is I was sick and I was in bed one time and the Lord came to me and he said, you know why you're a trial lawyer? And I said, no, why? He said, because you think you're a coward. And that's your way of proving that you're macho. I said, well... He said, I've got work news for you. He said, you're not a coward, but you're not macho either. He said, you let me use you to do what I want through you, and you'll be much happier. And boy, that began to make a difference. So, anyway, incidentally, don't let that out of this room. <laughs> I mean, if my clients found this out, I'm in deep trouble. Because I'm utterly dependent on the Lord. Yes, sir. In light of the statement you made at first, that where God has made a vacuum and the enemy has come in, in your 25 years as a child, how much of that have you seen change in the courts? In the courts? Yeah. Well, now that's another subject that will take us, yeah, a tremendous amount. I mean, I could go off for a couple hours about how we got to where we are. But then I'd have to charge. <laughs> you don't want to pay us. Why don't you come up and see me? Why don't you come up and see me during lunch? You know? uh, that's uh, that's a uh, we could go into that for a couple of hours. I mean, uh, just what's happened to us as a nation would make you nauseous. Uh, but anyway, back to t what happened to us is we fell under this terrible taskmaster and. Uh, what I want to do is look at some of his names that reflect who he is. Uh, for example, uh, we know from John 12:31 uh, that he is the prince of this world. Uh, we know, as we read in Ephesians 2:2, 2, 2, that he's the prince of the power of the air. Again, 2 Corinthians 4:4 4, 4 said he's the God, small g, God of this world. Uh, and we know from Matthew 21:24 24, uh, and Luke 11:15 that he is considered uh, the prince of demons. Uh, when we say God of this world, in no way is Satan uh, a uh, deity. He pretends to be deity, uh, but he is not deity. He is a created being. Uh, also, the names of the devil uh, give us insights into his character. For example, what I said earlier in Isaiah 14:12, he's referred to as Lucifer, which means light bearer. Uh, in Zechariah 3.1 and Revelation 12.9, which we read just a minute ago, uh, he has the name Satan. Luke 4.2, uh, he's called the devil. Uh, Revelation 12.9, also the devil. The Greek word for devil means divider, and that is precisely what he does. Uh, I mean, he, he divided men from God. He divides men from women. He divides employers from employees. Uh, he divides government, he divides, 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 division, division, division. That's what he does. He divides parents from children, does uh, everything he can. 
uh, to divide. And he, the reason he does that is because by division, and his main goal in division, actually, folks, is aimed at the church. Because as he keeps the church divided, he negates the power of the church. Because he understands that in unity there is a unique form of power that comes in unity. Look at the first few chapters of Acts. Every time they're doing something, it's like a nuclear explosion in his kingdom. And so he immediately begins to move to try to divide. First he tries to do it from the outside in the church. Then he tries to do it on the inside. Ananias, Sapphira, uh, dispute between the Hebrew widows and the Grecian widows of Acts 6. Trying any way he can to divide because he understands the unity of the church is a tremendous weapon against him. And of course you can look at us today and see how well he's done. You know, uh, we make denominations just at the drop of a hat. You know, one, uh, one passage in, in the gospel says that Jesus spit on the ground and made mud heal the guy's eyes. Another uh, part of the gospel says he spit twice on the ground. So now we have the one spitters and the two spitters. You know, we just <laughs> divide, divide, divide. We get into arguments over stuff that are absolutely irrelevant uh, to the fundamentals of, of doctrine. And the devil knows that, and that's why he's doing that. And we'll get a little further into that as well. He is also referred to as the old serpent, uh, which, again, we read before, the great dragon, uh, the evil one, John 17, 5, and 1 John 5, 18. And he is referred to, and this is one of his best names, destroyer. Destroyer, Revelation 9, 11. Also, the names that you see for him in Scripture will give you an understanding of uh, his activity. Uh, Matthew 4.3, he's called the tempter. He's also called this in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. Incidentally, folks, what are the elements of temptation? I would suggest that there are two elements uh, to temptation. One is desire. The other is opportunity. If those two elements don't come together, they're, they're negated. You can have the desire but not the opportunity. You can have the opportunity but not the desire. But when desire and opportunity come together, bang, you've got temptation. That, that's what it is. It's not temptation uh, otherwise. Uh, and wh- I'll tell you this. Satan, and this is why you should be praying for church leaders. Because Satan targets church leaders. Uh, and what he does is he tempts pastors to fall into sin for the purpose of exposing them later. Now God will oftentimes do it anyway, but just because the cancer festers under the surface. Uh, but the devil wants to expose them because he can do tremendous damage once he's done that. So he will tempt them into sin, but his goal is to at some point expose them. I would suggest to you that Ananias and Sapphira, everybody know that story in Acts 5. You know, they were selling their property. Barnabas sold some property, gave it to the church. Ananias and Sapphira sold some property, held them part of the money back, and came in and pretended that they were giving everything. Peter instantly says, why has Satan put it in your heart to lie? And of course, Ananias dropped dead. Sapphira, uh, what's her name, Sapphira, Where? came in after that, didn't know her husband had died. Peter asked her the same question. She flunked the test. She dropped dead. I would suggest to you that Satan 
would have, at a more opportune time, exposed them as having done what they did in order to create further damage. He gets nothing out of it by getting Ananias and Sapphira to lie, and then they're never exposed. But I guarantee you, once they were exposed on double timing, we'd start having people having dreams, and, oh, yes, God told me Barnabas did the same thing, and blah, blah, blah. That's what he was going to do. God moves quickly to stop that. And if we have a third great awakening like a bunch of us are praying for, and the Spirit of God comes into the church and begins to clean house, you may see some Ananias and Sapphira uh, because he does not put up with that. Uh, and he will cleanse his church thoroughly uh, with that. We think that God's love trumps his holiness. That's a lie from the pit. Uh, God's love and his holiness are two sides of the same coin. Okay. Uh, Revelation 12.9 He is the deceiver Revelation uh, 12.10 The accuser The accuser of the brethren Now here's something Let me uh, Give you this Because The accuser of the brethren means That he accuses us He accuses you Learn to distinguish The difference between accusation and conviction. Understand the difference between accusation and conviction. Accusation comes from the devil. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Well, the devil is such a sweet guy. I mean, he tempts you to sin, then you sin, and then he accuses you. You know, the sort of accusations you get from the devil are things like, you stupid. I mean, God won't have anything to do with you now. Look how many times you've dropped this ball. Sounds like politics to me. Well, same thing. <laughs> but he will, he will accuse you with a sense of condemnation in your heart. Why is that false? Because there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you come away with a sense of condemnation in your heart, uh, that's the devil. When the, when the Lord convicts, there is this sense of truth with a grief in it in having realized our sin and a desire to repent. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't condemn like that. He doesn't come in and say, I won't have anything to do with you now. You're good for nothing. Blah, blah, blah. I'm so... T-. You know what it says? Hebrews 4, 13 says... For no creature is hidden from his sight, for all are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now that would be terror for an unbeliever, but that is such comfort for a believer. Because when he called you and he brought you to him, he knew everything about you from beginning to end. And you are never going to hear him say, ooh, I didn't know you had that problem. You are never going to hear that because you are open and laid bare before him and you always have been and he knew all that you were and all of your hang-ups and all of your addictions and he understands where you are. He doesn't justify and he doesn't authorize and he doesn't say it's okay, go ahead and sin. That would violate his holiness. But he does know you and he wasn't caught by surprise by anything that's you or that you do. I hope that helps. Because the enemy will accuse you 
uh, and make you feel like dirt and understand the Holy Spirit never, never does that. You with me? Okay. I get people all the time that come up and want prayer and say, I have just this sense of condemnation. I say, well, we need to deal with the devil. Because that is him. That is not the Holy Spirit. He does not condemn. Okay. Satan's character. Uh, what do we know about him? John 8.44. We know he's a murderer. Uh, John uh, also the same passage he's a liar now here's what's scary 2 Corinthians 2.11 he is highly intelligent he's smarter than we are folks but he's not smarter than we and Jesus together but don't ever let him get you off by yourself and let you think that you can handle it he is smarter than we are he is highly intelligent 1 Peter 5.8 and Revelation 12.12 he is violent um and when we fell and were suckered by him, we were under his dominion for millennia. And the way he rules over us is to keep us from thinking that we're not autonomous. We think that we are in control of our lives and we do whatever we want to do. No, no, Ephesians 2.2 says the spirit of this world is working through us, the sons of disobedience. He lets us think that we're autonomous. We're not if we're outside of Christ. Why, why wouldn't you? I mean, you, the devil comes to you and says, Hi, the devil here. Let's go lust down at the mall today. He doesn't do that. He's not open and obvious. He controls, but he controls very subtly. Uh, and he deceives nations. Revelation 23 he rules over mankind by a host of demons, and that's the picture we get with Ephesians 6.12. What Paul is trying to get us to see in Ephesians 6.12 is the extent of the adversary, that it's a hordes of them. It's a tremendous number of them. Uh, and it says in Psalm 44, and Paul quotes this again in Romans 8, when we are under his dominion, we are sheep for slaughter. Uh, and instead of exercising, and this is what the devil has done, and you get this in Romans 1, 21, 22, and 23, instead of exercising dominion over creatures, instead we bow down and worship them. You see the difference in, in what's happened uh, and where we are. And we are bound by our sin to the devil's authority, and we are weakened by the flesh and by death, and folks, there ain't no hope. We are both helpless and hopeless, and there is no way uh, that we can get out of it uh, because the power of sin is resident in us, and what that means is the dominion of sin has control over us, and what that means is you cannot not sin. And the world is busy trying to prove that they don't sin, and you cannot not sin because it's not that you're in the dark, it's that darkness is in you. And so everything you do has a sin motive. So you cannot not sin. You're helpless. There's nothing you can do about it. And the good news is Jesus says free. Um, I mean, God sent his son, uh, and he chose to come, and he took our sin, uh, and he uh, paid our penalty. And here's the good news. He paid the penalty, and he took all of your sin from the time you were born until the time you were conceived until the time you die, he took it all and he paid for it all 
And then he paid the penalty that our sin creates for us. Eternal death. And that's another reason why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's already paid for it. 1 John 1 9 says if we sin and we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, outside of Christ, what was just if we sinned was eternal death. But because Jesus paid that penalty for us and paid it for all of our sins, when we confess what's just is forgiveness. Outside of Christ, sin, justice mandates condemnation. Inside of Christ, justice mandates forgiveness. Isn't that great? I mean, that is absolutely wonderful uh, that he forgives. And why? Because Jesus already paid for it. And I'll give you a quick example. I'll pick on Dale over here. Let's say I have a million dollar judgment on Dale. And I can tell you as a judgment creditor, I can make Dale's life absolutely miserable. I can uh, have the sheriff come in and pick up all his assets that aren't exempt. I can haul him into my office and take his deposition and find out where his bank accounts are. I can garnish his bank accounts. I can get every single thing he's got. I can absolutely wipe him out. I can go to court, ask the court to appoint a receiver and control all of his mail and everything he gets and take any money that comes to him and give it to me. And I can keep doing it for 10 years. And then if I have the sheriff go out and execute a writ on him within 10 years, I can extend it another 10 years. And there's no way. He can't pay a million dollars. There's no way. And I can just drive him into the ground. And depending on why I'm about a judgment on him, bankruptcy may not help him. But let's say Dennis comes in and hands me a million dollars. And he says, this is for Dale. That stops me. <laughs> I can't do anything to him anymore. My, his death's paid. I, I can't garnish his money. I can't take his property. I can't drive him into the ground. I can't do what I was doing. I was really enjoying it. And Dennis comes in and pays the debt, and Dale's free. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's come in, he's paid the debt, and we're free. Uh, he who was out sin, and you know this, uh, and Satan tried to tempt him and divert him from it. Um, uh, but Jesus came as the God-man, and he was the God-man when he hung on the cross. He died as a man. He took our sins upon himself, and he set us free from death and sin and restored fellowship with God. And now we're back with the one who is love, who wants us to be full of joy. Uh, you know, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you do not see him, you believe him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And the church is missing that. Where's the joy? It's the joy that makes people come up and say, what have you got that I haven't got? Yes, sir. You just said in a more palatable way to us, Romans chapter 7, the concept of two natures in that word. Yeah. 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 Where, you, where you, try, you try not to sin, and then you do the very thing that you don't want to do. Okay. Uh, yeah. And now we're going to get into the guts of spiritual warfare itself because now you've been taken off 
out of the prison of war camp, now you're on the battle line. Now what Jesus did is he took us out from under Satan's authority. In Luke 11, he says, when the strong man is fully armed, he guards his possession, but when one is stronger, he takes away the armor on which he defended and loots his possessions. Who's the strong man in that uh, parable? It's Satan. Who are his possessions that he's guarding? It's us. What is the armor he's depending on? The fact that he has authority over all who have sinned. Jesus took our sin, bang, removes his armor, he loots everything that he has. And our job, frankly, is to go back and get the rest of the POWs out. People are not our enemies. They're POWs, and our job is to set them free. That's the mission of the church. Now, when Jesus did this, what happens is man had been under Satan's authority for millennia. Now, redeemed man, Satan is under his authority because we are redeemed in Christ. And now he has no control over us anymore because we are in Christ and we have authority over him. And so what he has to do with us, and this is where the spiritual warfare comes in, he has to be careful that we don't understand that it's him we're dealing with. And the, and the little example I love to use is if I step out into the middle of I-30 and an 18-wheeler is coming down on me and I hold up my fist because I'm going to punch his lights out, who's going to win? He's going to proceed on like nothing had happened and I'm going to be a grease spot. But if because of who I am in Christ, if I step out into the middle of I-30 and I hold up my hand and I've got a little silver badge right here, that 18-wheeler that is far more powerful than me is going to come to a screeching halt because that little silver badge says, I have all the authority of the state of Texas and you better do what I'm telling you. See the difference? We have the authority He's got the power, but remember what we said? Power without authority is nothing. You've got the authority, and his power cannot do anything because he doesn't have authority over you. He had authority, he doesn't. You're in Jesus, it's been redeemed. Uh, you have been set free. Uh, and we don't understand so often how much we have set free uh, and now that we have authority over him in Jesus name uh, and what it means to be have authority in Jesus name it's like power of attorney we use the phrase in power of attorney I give my attorney authority to do all that I could do wasn't me there doing it instead and so when you have authority over Satan you're exercising the authority that Jesus had over Satan where Jesus himself there and Jesus is there because he's in you and so what happens is that uh, we now have authority over him. He knows that. And he attacks us in ways that do not obviously show that it's coming from him. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6.11, we war not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. Because the devil uses flesh and blood to attack us. And we don't understand that he is using flesh and blood uh, to attack us. Um, and even though his power over us is broken and he's defeated, uh, he's not yet taken out of the picture. And he is still coming uh, against us. I'll tell you what, let's take a break for about 
Alright, let's go back. Now one of the things that we've been talking about um, and what God is doing, we read a verse early on in Ephesians 3. Uh, verse 10 says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, it says in Genesis uh, 1 that God gave man authority over the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, uh, the, the other animals, and the fish. And it also says the creeping things. And a lot of theologians theorize that the creeping things were the demons. Mm -hmm. And so one of the other reasons why the devil uh, attacked us uh, so quickly was because here is weak little man and he's under our authority. And of course, once we fell, it flip-flopped, went the other way around. Uh, but now that we've been redeemed, uh, he's under our authority. And what God is going to do, uh, and is in the process of doing, why does he leave Satan free to run around? Because he is using Satan to develop us into spiritual maturity. Because he can't have the impact on us that he can have on those he has over authority. So he will use his trials that he brings uh, to create in us a spiritual authority and maturity. And teach us how to exercise our authority. Uh, when he says in verse 10 so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places he intends to conquer Satan through the weakness of man by demonstrating his power through man and giving him authority and what he is doing folks is he is training us to reign uh, every one of you have been called and your names were determined before the foundation of the world. And if you're in Christ today, you have been called and you've been called to a position. Not simply in the church in this world, although that is true, but you have each been called to occupy a position in the heavenly kingdom that is eternal. And he is using now to train you to occupy your position. At the end of the road for you is a throne, not an abyss. And we are all going to have different positions. Hence the training is different for each of us. You want a picture of exactly what God is doing, go look at the life of Joseph. But he will use the devil to accomplish his purposes for us that we might reign with him throughout all eternity. So you may have a trial that somebody else isn't having but it's because of what he's training you for in eternity. And so the devil is going to wind up being an unwilling instrument to accomplish his purposes. You see this in Acts. Every time the devil attacks uh, in the in Acts, what happens? The gospel increases. 
Remember when Stephen was killed? Uh, Christianity was going big time in Jerusalem. When Stephen was killed, it spread like fire. You know, the devil threw water on the on the fire on the stove and spread it all over the kitchen. So people started scattering from Jerusalem in groups. And they'd run a few miles and they'd stop and talk to people and say, Have you heard? No, what? Jesus bore our sins and rose from the dead. So now we're saved. Sorry, got to go. They'd run a few more miles. Have you heard the news? And, and this Christianity just spread out. If you look at Acts, that's the pattern. Every time the enemy attacks, those who are walking with him, yes, they endure the attack, but at the same time, the gospel spreads. Also, for you individually, you're being brought into ever-increasing maturity to be enabled to function in the position He called you to. And He called you to this position before the foundation of the world. Now, I can't explain that to you, uh, but I know that this is part of the spiritual warfare. Change your focus. It's not us under His heel. It's God using His heel to develop us because we're already above Him. You with me? Uh, it can change your viewpoint uh, critically uh, in the way things go. God is demonstrating His wisdom to the powers in the heavens. And if you haven't read the end of the book, I would encourage you to do so. Go read Revelation 21 and 2. The Lamb wins at the end. And He is doing this to demonstrate that in redeemed man, even though man and men, redeemed men and women are weak, Nevertheless, he will use redeemed men and women to conquer. That's why the church, the gates of hell, will not prevail against the church because the church consists of redeemed men and women and God is dependent, I mean determined, to manifest his power through our weakness against the church. And every time we're attacked, we increase in strength because he uses the enemy to do that. What you want to do is cooperate with him in terms of what he's doing. This makes sense? What I'm saying? Okay. Now, he redeemed us. What does redeem mean, incidentally? Uh, redeem had different words and meanings in Greek. By the time of Jesus' time, it meant this. If one had title uh, to uh, property and lost that property, somebody else got superior title, and you redeemed it, you got it back. So title came back to you. That's what happened. God made us to walk with Him. Satan interposed Himself, took us away from God. God ceased to be our God and we ceased to be His people. Satan became our God and we became His people. But God has redeemed us, paid the price. We are back. He has tied to us again. He is our God and we are His people. And so we are redeemed and we are brought back. Uh, and it is a tremendous thing. And what I said earlier, our mission is, of the church, is to plunder the devil's house. Now this is why this is spiritual warfare. We are to plunder the devil's house. We are to ransack his kingdom. It's not the other way around. Him ransacking us. We are ransacking him. We are ransacking his kingdom. And we are re rescuing everyone that we can that is held captive. Understand this, and one of the problems we have in America, folks, is the Titanic, the world is like the Titanic. It has hit the iceberg, 
it is going down. We in the church are not supposed to be rearranging deck chairs. We are supposed to be getting as many people into the lifeboats as we can. And that is our function. The, the, the unbeliever is never the enemy. Now, he may be a pawn and an instrument of the enemy, but he is never the enemy. He is the uh, POW, and our job is to break him out uh, and to get him out, and that's what we're doing. And Satan is counterattacked again and again and again, uh, but he is never going to win. Uh, it is all over, uh, but nonetheless, he understands that if he can keep us divided and keep us complacent and keep us comfortable and happy and affluent, he can accomplish a lot more in the time that he has left. Uh, and so we have got uh, to wake up uh, and stop doing that. And frankly, folks, right now he's got millions that are held captive and they're still slaves. And if you had any idea about what goes on uh, in the realms of darkness, there are still people out there who sacrificed their children to demons. That is still going on. There are people in false religions uh, that in their meetings they will slither around on the floor like snakes. I mean, uh, I had a friend of mine who is a missionary uh, in uh, uh, Peru, in the deep, deep uh, jungles in Peru, uh, and he admits that he didn't understand spiritual warfare, and they were working with the Indians in this tribe, and Satan was coming against them, and the witch doctors would come in to the tribe, and they would point at a new convert and said, you'll be dead in a week, and you'd be dead in a week. And they'd be sitting there, and all of a sudden, uh, straight up noon, all of a sudden the sun would go dark, uh, it would be completely dark, the Indians would start running all over the place, voices would be coming out of heaven, uh, screaming at them, scaring them to death, demonic demonstration going on constantly. The Indians in Peru, folks, are much more spiritually sophisticated than we are because the devil doesn't hesitate to openly manifest himself to them. Of course, it's interesting about him. He said, I know how to do spiritual warfare. And he said, they literally, I had a nervous breakdown and they literally carried me out in a basket. And they were shipping me back to the States. And I was in a hospital in Lima and a Pentecostal pastor stopped in my room and told me how to deal with spiritual warfare. He said, I got up off my bed. I went back to that tribe in the heart of the jungle and we prevailed. Uh, because we have authority. He did not realize his authority and he didn't know how to use it. And I mean, I would encourage you, if you want to get an idea of just exactly what kind of slavery goes on under the control of the Prince of Darkness, Read Twilight Labyrinth by George Otis. Uh, it will really open your minds. People uh, in uh, their shape changers, the Indian American Indians have what they call shape changers, uh, where a person changes into the shape of an animal or changes into the shape of a, uh, of a bird or an owl. That is pure demonic. That is Twilight Labyrinth. It is total demonic. Uh, we have people in America, the, Lord, the enemy doesn't manifest himself like this because it's not in his best interest to do so. But as we go further down the tubes, I will tell you to watch carefully, you're going to see him manifesting himself in this nation more and more openly. 
and people are getting into Eastern religion, people are getting into all kinds of things, and our job is to come against that. Um, and our job is to set them free and get, get them free of the things that are tormenting them. And lots of people are in absolute torment uh, right now. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the armor of God. And that's Ephesians 6. And frankly, the devil can't have you anymore, and his attacks are designed to negate you being able to carry out your, your job, uh, to keep you from uh, accomplishing the mission. So what we want to look at is the way in which spiritual warfare now comes against the church. There's no way he gets you back. He can negate your power. He can negate your ability to exercise the authority in Christ. He can do all kinds of things to us, but he cannot have us back. We are out from under him. We are redeemed. There is no such thing as re-redeemed. Once we are redeemed, and incidentally, when God redeemed us, uh, and 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, he says, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Okay. Uh, Jesus didn't set you free so you could just go your way and do what you want. Jesus, we've always been under dominion. We're either under Satan's dominion or we're under God's dominion. But he didn't remove us from Satan's dominion so we could just go out and do whatever we wanted. We are now under his dominion. We are therefore obedient to him. Okay, and he has equipped us to be able to deal with the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. Uh, yes, ma'am. How many religions enslave women? You know, Islam's a good example. Uh, women are absolutely enslaved. Uh, they are abused. They're beaten up. Uh, the enslavement in this nation comes in the area of pornography. Uh, women are manipulated. Women are the more uh, modest of the two sexes. Get a load of their swimwear. That doesn't make sense. Well, that's exactly the opposite. Uh, 
But the devil is constantly coming against women, destroying modesty, uh, using them as objects, uh, or just downright crushing them. It doesn't matter. One of the reasons why I think uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women is because God was saying, I made the promise to Eve, and I want you to see, I kept it. Because the devil has been utterly against women. And Christian men have a responsibility to protect their wives and daughters because the enemy wants to come after them. You know, I'm not excluding sons, but uh, you can just see so much that goes on in this world is aimed at women. Uh, and uh, I see lots of heads nodding, so you know what I'm talking about. Because he hates it. He hates men and women, and he particularly hates redeemed men and women, but he has particularly against women because the seed comes through the woman. And that seed is what crushed his head, and that head is crushed, and he's, he's quite vengeful about it. Now look at Ephesians, and we're gonna, we are going to look at uh, homosexuality because that is an aspect of spiritual warfare. Homosexuals are under, and they won't like this, but they are under a demonic archetype. Uh, the characteristics are the same wherever you go in the world. Uh, they may be different dress, different languages, but the characteristics are essentially the same uh, no matter where you go. Okay, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Let's just stop there. We're not going, this is the introduction to the armor. We're not going to get into the armor probably until after lunch. But look at the very first word in Ephesians 6.10 is the word finally. What I want to say about that is, is that this is not, this passage that is introduced by the word finally is not a postscript. This is not a, oh, by the way. Finally indicates that all of Ephesians has been coming to this point. Finally is an extremely uh, critical word. Uh, and what he says is, and you need to read 10, 11, and 12, and 13 together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then verse 12, he lists four classifications, four divisions of authority by which the enemy's ranks are divided into. Uh, and the point that Paul is making is, is that if a third of the angels fell, uh, then we have no idea how many billions that is. But his point is, is that this entire massive, invisible uh, enemy with this tremendous power is ranged against us. And the only way that we are going to stand against him is three things. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and to put on the whole armor of God. And you'll notice 
in verse 13, the first thing he talks about when he introduces putting on the whole armor of God is he talks about being careful of the schemes or the wiles of the devil because the enemy's spiritual warfare is brought most frequently, most commonly against the Christian in terms of schemes and wiles. He doesn't openly, directly attack for the most part when he's dealing with believers because he knows we have authority. And if many of us know that that's who's coming against us, bang, we exercise the authority. And I'll tell you, uh, what he does is, with his schemes, when the average believer does not understand he's under attack and does not understand what's going on, ultimately his main goal is to negate the church. And what I hope we'll see is the various pieces of armor in and of themselves are designed to deal with specific schemes that the devil brings against us. You with me? Alright, now, the schemes that he can bring against us are as common as the sands on the sea. I mean, in terms of, of numerous. But his goal is to negate the church with schemes that people are not aware of. And once he has done that, then look in verse 13, it says, Therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. What happens historically is once he has negated the church with schemes and wiles then comes the day of evil. Beautiful example of it Nazi Germany. In the decades before the 30's the higher criticism all this other stuff in the church even the evangelical church was being absolutely negated by the schemes of the devil. In January 1933, Adolf Hitler became Reich's Chancellor. By July of 1933, he had total control of Germany. And it was the negation of the evangelical church that enabled him to do it. In fact, most, and I can't say most, a good many in the church in Germany saw Hitler initially as a good thing. And in 1933, in July of 1933, Hitler took absolute control and evangelical leaders came to see Hitler. And two, one man who stood with the evangelicals, there was two, two evangelicals that were able to stand against him who were leaders. I'm not trying to say they were the only two. One was uh, Bonhoeffer. The other was Martin Daimler. And a group of evangelical pastors came to see Adolf Hitler in July of 1933 to ascertain where he was going. And it became abundantly clear where he was going. And Martin Daimler says to Hitler, what about the soul of the German people? And Hitler became furious and said, I will take care of the soul of the German people. And the other pastors backed away from Daimler, left him standing there. Now what happened was, the enemy had negated the effectiveness and the power of the evangelical church 
and I understand folks, this is an oversimplification of what I'm saying. It's much more complex than the way I'm making it sound. You with me? Okay. But he had in essence negated when the day of evil came, very few in the church were able to stand. The day of evil. Dimoller, incidentally, was eventually arrested, placed in a concentration camp. Dimoller survived the war. Bonhoeffer didn't. In fact, Bonhoeffer went back when he was footloose, you know, free, out of Germany. Felt God called him back. Went back to Germany. I shared this one time about uh, oh, 16 or 17 years ago in a sermon in church. And when I sat down, somebody in the back, white hair, says, I want to make a comment about what Z Preacher said. And I knew immediately, oh my gosh, he's German. <laughs> and he probably lived then. And he's going to say, the guy is nuts. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And he stood up and he said, what he said about Germany is all true. America, it will happen to you. Wake up. Uh, and he's well on his way to negating the power of the church, and he does it one believer at a time. You know, and the power of the church right now is very weak, um, and we are being infiltrated by the devil's attacks in the area of doctrine, uh, in the area of heresy. Uh, I'm not going to call for a show of hands, but uh, their heretical books are on the Christian bookstands. Folks, this may disappoint some of you, but the shack is a book of pure heresy. It's teaching universalism. And they sold millions of copies. The Christian radio stations pushed them. The Christian bookstores pushed it. The man who wrote it is a universalist, which means nobody's going to go to hell. There's no judgment. There's none of this stuff. And the church is so ignorant of its doctrine and the scriptures that the schemes of the devil are working in massive ways. The same thing can be said of Red China although back in the 40s, although it's flip-flopping now. You know, I've forgotten how many, I think I read a statistic that 45,000 a week are coming to Christ in China. I mean, there, uh, you know, Christ is taking over China. Uh, but uh, back at the beginning, what you have is this pattern, the schemes, then the day of evil negates the believer in the day of evil and few are able to stand in the day of evil now I don't want to scare you but we're getting close and if you've got your head up and your eyes open you can't miss what's happening um, it's, it's going on and part of the reason and the main reason it's going on is because the church of Jesus Christ in America has succumbed to the schemes of the devil and is no longer salt and light in the society except in certain specific areas. And that's because we do not understand how absolutely comprehensive spiritual warfare really is. We think it's casting out demons. It is that, but it's far more than that. So let me, uh, have I prepared you well for lunch now? <laughs> Let me give you an example now. That's very common for all. Were you going to say something? John, I look at my life as a believer, and I'm 
34, 35 years. Came, I believe, at the age of 38. And lived in, a, lived in the prime time, so to speak. Grew up in the 50s. You know, everything was nice. Do what you wanted to do, the kids and everything else. And most of us, even as parents, had gotten to the point where we were just like an ace go about our, our religion because we were insulated. We were sheltered. And I hope, I'm not throwing stones at somebody. This man that we have leading this nation has drove me to find out more about my Faith. Well, that's the value. If if the leaders of the nation drive you to your knees, and we're going to get to this, uh, because one of the areas of spiritual warfare, it not only deals with us daily folks, but it deals with the highest levels, and we have a very specific calling about how we do this, exactly what we do. Uh, and we'll look at this, we'll go back to Daniel 10 this afternoon, because what happens is God pulls the veil back and we get a brief look at the actual spiritual warfare going on in the heavenlies. But what we have the ability to do, and I'm not talking about elections at all, folks, what we have the ability to do as believers with the authority of Christ is really exciting. And we're not doing it. But it's a question of doing it, of learning what it is and doing it. Uh, but I'll get to that. But the church is not, well, the church the, is not standing up and taking it. The only way the church is going to come to the understanding of what we're talking about today and do it is for individual members of the church to do just what you said. Get on your knees and start interceding. Because Satan has negated us one believer at a time. And we will take it back in Jesus, one believer at a time. And there, I'll tell you this, we don't have time to get into this, but there are tremendous moves afoot for Christ. Uh, there is a tremendous prayer ministry ongoing. Through, and it even honeycombs uh, Congress. Uh, so there's a lot going on we don't realize. Uh, but the idea is to come before him and say, here I am. Wherever I've been up to now, I've been complacent, whatever. Never mind that. I repent of that. Here I am. Do with me as you choose. Because the stakes are too high to be comfortable anymore. Because once the other side, the day of evil comes, you won't be comfortable for sure uh, when that happens. And that is exactly what he is moving to do. He is moving to destroy this nation. Why is he doing that? Because this nation has been responsible more than any other for the promulgation of the gospel for two centuries. And you can see his impact and effect because now instead of putting out the scriptures, we put out pornography worldwide. That's the sort of thing that's going on. But uh, I don't have time to get into this now. I, I want to get back to what we're doing. But this is part of what we're doing. But this is the goal in the spiritual warfare that we deal with, this is where it's going. And this is what he's trying to do. We are the defense. We are the wall. We're the bulwark. It's not somebody else. 
It's not get so and so out of office. It's not get such and such into office. We are the defense. And we have the authority to be able to carry it off. Can I say something about that? We're to pray, we're about the Bible. The Bible tells us to pray for the leaders of our land. It doesn't make any difference who the president of the United States is or what he's doing. We know what he's doing, we know what we like and what we don't like, according to whichever party of belief that we believe in. But our job is to pray for that person, to be on our knees, and to pray for that individual and to, and to uh, give him the discernment dis- to do his job and to do it correctly. In fact, we're going to be coming to that when we hit Daniel 10. Go to 12. Everybody wait. Everybody, everybody depressed? <laughs> you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Because you have the answer in your heart. And you have the powers available to you. I mean, there is one of the things that fascinates me. I'm a Civil War buff. I mean, I didn't fight in it. I mean, I, I tell you what, if I'd lived in those times, you know which side I would have been on? Neither. I'd have gone to California. <laughs> Knowing what I know about the Civil War, I mean, that was just slaughter. I would not have gone into it. It's an interesting battle, though. Battle of Chancellorsville. One of Lee's greatest victories. Uh, the Union general was Hooker. Uh, he outnumbered Lee by two to one, but he never knew it because he had sent his cavalry off and he had no idea that the Confederate force opposing him was significantly less than his own. He had 120,000. Lee had 57,000. In uh, the four or five days of the Battle of Chancellorsville, uh, Lee pulled off some amazing overwhelming victories in individual skirmishes and battles during this tremendous battle. But what's interesting is two things. Because Hooker, General Hooker, did not realize his own strength, he did not understand that there was never a time during that battle that he could not have won it. And eventually he lost, withdrew back across the Rappahannock and took his troops with him. It is the same with the American church. We've got to understand our strength, and there is never a time when victory is not within our grasp. Uh, and we can't make that mistake. Okay, let's look at uh, Ephesians 6.12, because I don't want this to be a discussion and a time of depression and gloom. It is not. It is a time of great opportunity, uh, and the opportunity to see God tremendously glorified. All right, Ephesians 6.12, and here's where the subtlety of the enemy's attack of spiritual warfare comes in. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and then he goes on to list these four levels of demonic authority. But what the situation is, is with believers, Satan's attack normally, not always, but frequently, comes against us through flesh and blood. And what will happen is he will attack us through people. Now when he brings the attack against us through flesh and blood, um, if we don't recognize that we're being attacked, we will not use our authority. 
What he wants us to do is remember what we said about the, the semi on I-30. As between us and the devil, he is more powerful than we are. But we have authority over him, and his power is negated by our authority in Jesus. So the way his schemes work is to draw us out into dealing with him on a power base without realizing that this calls for our authority. You with me? Because when we deal with him on a power base, we can't win because he's more powerful. And so he will attack us through flesh and blood, through people, so that we will not realize we are in a situation where we need to exercise not only the authority uh, that we have in Christ, but also to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and putting on the whole armor. I'll give you an example. Uh, and unfortunately, we can unwittingly as believers be pawns in the devil's hands. But somebody comes against you uh, and offends you. Let's just use that example. I mean, there's any number of examples we could use. Ever been offended by anybody? Yeah. <laughs> Insulted by anybody? Yeah. Uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. People come against you. They offend you. They uh, they may uh, hurt your feelings. I'm, I'm giving you a mild example of this. I mean, it, it goes all the way up to the secret police knocking on your door at night. But what we deal with most of the time, day in and day out, is the people that we rub elbows with offending us, uh, hurting our feelings, doing all kinds of things like that. When that comes against you, the enemy is not aiming for you personally in the sense of your person, your, your physical body as a rule. What he's aiming at is your soul. And what he wants you to do is when somebody insults you or treats you poorly or is arrogant and rude and nasty with you, and we'll just keep it on this level, what he wants you to do is he wants you to react in kind. Because when you react in kind, then you have stepped out onto the power base and you are dealing on a power base and not authority, and you are a casualty waiting to happen. Because what he's wanting to happen is that eventually you'll get angry, resentful, bitterness will set in. Uh, I know people, even in families, they haven't spoken to each other in years because they're angry, bitter toward one another, because they reacted to each other in kind. Uh, and what the devil wants to do is to create in your hearts uh, anger, bitterness, Oh, but it's not generally. It's just against this one. That's okay. That'll do it. Because that will negate the grace of God to you. Uh, and so what do you want counting on you to do is when somebody comes up to you and hurts your feelings and it, or insults you or whatever they do, he is counting on you to say, well, so is your old man. You know, to respond back exactly as you have been dealt with. And when that happens, then it escalates. It just gets worse and worse. Or you don't say anything. You just take it, and then it festers in your soul. Um, I had a guy I used to work with who was 
I won't say his name, you wouldn't know him anyway. But let's just say Tackless was his middle name. <laughs> and he said something to me one time that just absolutely angered me. And it was stupid what he said, and it was tactless, and he didn't even know what he said. And I'm sitting there saying, you stupid idiot. You don't even know what you said. Now, what am I doing here? Well, first of all, I'm judging him. Secondly, I am not responding to him, which I should have done, and I should have responded in the proper way. And instead, I'm stuffing it. The result is anger builds up. He came in to the office three weeks later, and here I am, and he gives, sticks his head in my office and gives me a cheery good morning, and I said, what's good about it? I exploded all over him. And then I realized why, and I had to go in and apologize. But in that case, it got dealt with by the way, but it destroys us when we don't deal with it properly. You know the way to deal with it properly, for example? Good example, my favorite example is Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin. A high priest says to him, um, ask him about his teaching. Jesus says, I taught openly in the temple. Ask my disciples what I taught. Guard standing next to him slaps him in the face and says, is that any way to speak to the high priest? Now, Jesus' response is, my lawyer will call you in the morning. <laughs> no. Well, that's the way most of them. How dare you slap me, you blankety blank. How does Jesus respond to him? Jesus turns to him. He doesn't let him get away with it. But he turns to him and he says, and I don't think in an agitated voice, he says, if I have spoken incorrectly, tell me what I said wrong. Otherwise, why did you hit me? I see he's confronted this guy. The guy is now on, uh, now on the spot. Because why did he hit him? He hit him so he could curry favor with the high priest. That's why he did it. Jesus' response to him is one of humility. And here's one of the keys in spiritual warfare. The key to maintaining control in these situations is humility. If you read, for example, the Gospel of Luke, you will find that throughout the Gospel, and it's true of all the others, that Jesus is constantly in control. When he's around his enemies, he controls them. When he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, he controls them. He is in control on the cross. And then he surrenders his spirit to his Father, and the Father takes control. But the secret of his ability to maintain control in any given situation is humility. Because if he had lashed out at the guy that struck him, then immediately he would have lost control and that guy would have taken control. You with me? You see how that would happen? Oh, you hit him again? <laughs> Probably. If he lashed out at us. But Jesus, in his humility, doesn't let him get away with it. But he doesn't lash out at it. Now, frankly, when the devil sends people against us like this, he is counting on us to respond in like kind. Because if we respond the way Jesus does, humility, kindness, he's in danger of losing his palm. Because that's the sort of thing that will cause them to look twice. And what did Jesus say in Luke 6.27? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute, that sort of thing. 
you respond with kindness, Satan may lose that. Because that'll get them. Scripture says that too. Look over here in 2 Timothy. And incidentally, folks, it is the only way to guard against the damage the enemy's trying to bring into your soul. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Now notice this. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Uh, you see why Jesus talks about loving your enemies? You know, it is spiritual warfare at its deepest. Uh, because it is flesh and blood that the enemy sends against us. When we respond in kind, in a negative way, to the negative response, then we've stepped out on a power base and we are no longer operating according to authority. When we function with kindness and with loving our enemies and praying for them, then we have negated the danger that is being brought against our soul and in turn we have a chance uh, to bring them to Christ. Does this make sense? Now do you see why it's critical to be able to do this? That we have to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might with the whole armor. Because our normal reaction when these things happen is to come after them. I know. I do it all the time. You know, I get an obnoxious lawyer on the other side and the first thing I want to do when he climbs down my throat is climb down his. And it's getting less and less where that's the case. Uh, and a lot of times the Lord will cause me to realize I'm escalating. And when you realize you're escalating, what you do is you back down and you start going back and saying, Lord, I need your help. I need your grace. I am not able to handle this on my own. And that's part of being strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Because you begin to confess weakness and He comes in and says, I will perfect my power. A lot of times it's necessary to be prayed up. Uh, in the morning, you want to spend time with the Lord in prayer uh, because you don't know what's going to come against you during the day. Uh, and that was Peter's problem. You know? Jesus said to Peter, uh, Peter says, I'm going to live for you and I'm going to die for you right before the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Jesus say to Peter? You don't have to do that right now. Just stay awake for an hour while I pray. (laughs) Well, we know what happened. And Jesus comes to him and he finds him sleeping. And he says, pray that you might not enter into temptation. What happened? Within an hour, he was facing temptation. Oh, you're one of the Galileans, aren't you? You were with him. No, I'm not. Yeah, I can say you're. I can tell when you say you're not. You are. You have a Galilean accent, and it gets, it gets worse and worse. He's not ready for it. See, temptation comes in many ways. When somebody comes against you, there's the temptation. There is the opportunity to respond, and because they have come against you in a negative way, there is with it the desire to respond. Remember what we were talking about when we defined temptation? That's what that is. 
the opportunity, we tend to see it, men tend to see this as sexual temptation. And it is that. The temptation is far broader than that. The temptation to steal, the temptation to do all kinds of things, the temptation to respond in kind to the way we're being treated. That is part of spiritual warfare, and we engage in it on a daily basis. We either lose or win, depending on whether or not we understand where we are. Are you with me? Okay, that's part of this flesh and blood stuff. Uh, and he will come against you. It can come up on a much higher level. Uh, the, the government actually in areas in nations and in history coming against people where they are actually uh, arresting them, uh, putting them in jail, martyring them, things like that. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Fascinating book, especially during the Roman period. Uh, the Christian was so full of joy so often, and I've told this story many times, but oftentimes at one period, the gladiators that were being used to put the Christians to death, after they had done so, found their way down into the catacombs asking how they could become believers because they saw the power and the joy up close with the Christians. Uh, numerous examples of those who stood in judgment over them one in particular, I can remember the governor of a province, wound up condemning an entire family to death, but because of their prayers and their love and their joy, shortly after that was converted himself and followed them into the arena three weeks later. But you learn to be able to do that down here with the people that come against you. You lay the pattern now so that you're ready when that sort of thing happens. Okay, we need to shut it down and go to lunch. Um, but we'll come back and go into the armor. But I wanted you to see why uh, the spiritual warfare ranges from uh, very minor to significant. Okay? You might aim for coming back here between 12.45 and 1. I think what we'll do is start at 1. Okay, are we ready? Incidentally, sometimes the Lord will um, reveal when you've got a direct attack coming against you. Uh, the, uh, I, when my daughter Terry turned 12, I took her to the Institute of Basic Human Conflicts, which is a seminar that runs about a week. And uh, uh, we were down, there's about 9,000 people go to that thing, and we were sitting down on the front row well, not the front row, but the front section. And Bill Gothard is the guy that is teaching this thing, and he's in the middle of a very critical uh, subject, and uh, my daughter Terry starts to cough. And about every 30 or 40 seconds, she coughs. And it's uh, distracting. And people look around, you know, and I was distracted, she was distracted. People around us were distracted. And I just prayed silently, Lord, heal this cough. And the Lord responded instantly, and he said, you deal with it. <laughs> I said, I beg your pardon, sir? <laughs> he said, you deal with it. I said, how do I deal with it? This is a conversation going on in my mind. He said, it's a demon rebuking. Ugh. 
Well, I have this picture in my mind standing up in the middle of everything. And Gothard up there speaking, going, I'm out of here in the name of Jesus. <laughs> so I didn't do anything. And she kept coughing. And I said, Lord, get rid of this. And he said, I've shown you what to do. Do it. So she continued to cough. And so I just leaned over. And I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus and I order you to get away from her. Bang. She said later, the tickle was coming up in the throat. As soon as I said that, it's gone. Um, so often, uh, the devil masquerades in so many things. Now, in that case, I would never have realized. I've had other situations where we're praying for healing. And the Lord would come in and say, this is caused by a demon and this is what you need to do. But um, so often, it's so common we never think about it. Uh, but he will, if you're walking with him, he'll he'll tell you. I mean, he will he will clue you in on what's going on. And so when I started praying about it, then he said, "Here's what it is." It was a question on my part of being obedient to what he told me. And that's one of our problems so often that we have is an unwillingness to be obedient because we're afraid of how we will look or how we will appear. And the Lord is saying, be obedient and I'll respond. And as long as I delayed, nothing happened. But when I was finally obedient to what he said, bang, it was instant uh, in his coming uh, against that demonic power, cast them out. One of the things we'll look at, and I want us to understand this in Ephesians 6, um, the two verses that we rarely cover when we're talking about spiritual warfare, but we need to, the two verses that are on the end of the description of of the spiritual armor. And that is verse 18 and 19. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me, in the opening of my mouth and made known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Two of the attacks, and his major purpose for these, attacking the church, is even to bring bitterness into your heart, you know, like we were talking about before, where people come against you, that sort of thing, uh, and to negate your ability uh, to be effective for him. The things that he's trying to shut down is in verse 18 and 19, prayer and witness. He is trying to stop intercessory prayer and he's trying to shut down the witness of the believer uh, because that's what will ransack his kingdom. Uh, I mean, when believers starts to pray, they start to tremble and that's true. Uh, they do. The last thing they want you doing is on your knees praying about it. Or whether you don't have to be on your knees, I often pray in the car and I just can't get on my knees and keep one foot on the accelerator and the other on the brake. Plus, I found it unwise to close my eyes in prayer at that time. But uh, he wants to stop prayer, and you negate the believer so that he is full of anger, full of judgmental attitude, full of the sort of things that will shut down the communion we have with the Holy Spirit, because he will not tolerate those things. And so if he can get our souls... In those kinds of conditions, he negates prayer frequently. God can't hear us. It's not that he doesn't want to. But we have put a barrier, not him putting a barrier with us, but us putting barriers up with him. The Holy Spirit is grieved in areas of things like uh, anger and bitterness and malice and that sort of thing. And you can see that it's stated in Ephesians 5, 
33. Okay, now, we talked about the fact that the way that he comes against us uh, is by human beings, and there's no end to the way that happens, and the way he can do that. Gossips can do it. You can be a Christian gossip. If you are, you're working for the enemy, whether you know it or not. Uh, but gossips, um, uh, criticizers, uh, you know, besides being offensive, false teachers, false prophets, false disciples, just it goes on and on. And he attempts to infiltrate the church consistently. And you know, a lot of the apostles are dealing with that sort of thing. First John is dealing with the fact that the enemy is trying to infiltrate. Uh, the church in Ephesus at that time with Gnosticism, uh, which was uh, heavily uh, heavily in force uh, in Ephesus at the time. And so we are constantly having the enemy encroach on us theologically, emotionally, uh, you name it. And a lot of times uh, he will openly manifest uh, what we're, you know, he will sometimes direct the shows sharing at lunch real quick and I'll get on to it but uh, I've got daughters that uh, we had a one of them in particular is spiritually sensitive she has a gift of discerning spirits and we had a homosexual that lived on the next door to us and their bedrooms were on his side of the house and uh, of course this is not politically correct statement to make but uh, their demons would so periodically manifest in their bedrooms uh, and of course our bedroom was on the other side of the house and the girls have always been instructed when they encounter that what to do and I've told them uh, when they would start to see this here and there I don't mean to say that they were tracking through there every night I mean it was it would happen not constantly and not frequently but it would happen and so what I told them is you deal with it yourself if you can't come get me and one time one of them had to come get me, but other than that, they knew how to deal with it. And your children should be instructed in spiritual warfare and what to do, because they're going to encounter it, whether it's direct like that. Uh, and, you know, they knew to cast them out. I was sharing at lunch that one night I had a terribly demonic dream. Very fearful. I woke up sweating, heart racing. Uh, it was a terrifying dream. The next morning we're sitting at breakfast and my daughter Terry says there was a demon in my room. I woke up and his presence was in my room and I cast him out of my room. And I said, Terry, next time cast him out of the house. <laughs> we go to hotel rooms, motel rooms when we're traveling. The first thing we do when we walk into those hotel rooms is we take authority over whatever's in there. Because you don't know who's been in there before you. And we've had situations where you know, we in a hotel room in San Antonio, and we were there for five nights. The first two nights, one of my daughters had the mind. Huh? Uh-huh. And yeah, it's right across from the Alamo. Yeah. One of the oldest the Alamo. Well, she had demonic dreams two nights in a row. Then it dawned on us, we had to take an authority over everything in the room. We did that, and bang, that was the end of it. Uh, but that's what's all around us, folks. Uh, you just Some of us don't realize uh, all the warfare that's going on. Okay, now, let's look at Ephesians 6.12, and let's take a look at what some of these demonic authorities do. Now, 
various theologians and commentators have their own ideas about what each one of these groups stand for, and I'll give you my idea, but nobody knows for sure, and I'm not certain that that's Paul's purpose. I think what Paul wants us to understand is these forces are ranged against us. And that's the reason he starts off by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God. He wants us to understand that we have a significant force that's being ranged against us that is organized. I mean, they're not just all over the place and willy-nilly. They're organized. Uh, And what you get from verse 12 is the fact that they are organized and that they are organized in ranks and in levels of authority. But I'll give you some ideas that I think from reading uh, commentators and theologians, what's probably the, if you're going to try to say what are these various organizations, if you will, or, or groups of demonic authorities, what do they do, what are they responsible for, I give you the best thought, best shot at it that I think I've been able to find. First of all, it's going to vary a little bit in terms of the words in Ephesians 6. For example, Ephesians 6.12 in the NASB says, first... Uh, rulers, then powers, then world forces of this darkness, and then spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Your translations may vary just a little bit. Like the second one uh, may be authorities in your translation rather than powers. Uh, But essentially it's going to be the same thing. For example, rulers uh, are demonic beings who rule over nations and cities and other governmental and political units. Um, the um, example of that that we cited earlier, uh, and this is one we want to just camp on for just a minute, uh, because we get all worked up over politics, and for the believer that's not the issue. What, what I'm saying is, what I said this morning is, don't hesitate to function as a responsible citizen. And incidentally, just an aside, a responsible citizen is learn what the issues are and don't just go out there and vote based on outer appearance or how well somebody argues or that sort of thing. Understand the issues, understand where you stand. But that's not the answer to the problem. God set up government for one purpose. He determined before the foundation of the world that he would redeem us when we fell. And in order to bring his plan of redemption into practice, he set up, into fruition, he set up government to maintain order among a world full of sinners. Because without government, it would be chaos. But God deferred judgment against sin. He could have wiped Adam and Eve out just like that. The fact that when he goes looking for them, he says, Adam, where are you? That's the indication he's going to redeem us. Because he knew where he was. All he had to do was go, you're gone. But he had determined in advance that he was going to redeem us. And the purpose of redemption, uh, to carry out the redemption, was going to take some millennia. And so government was set up as a means of a bulwark against evil among sinners who otherwise would be running wild. That's why anarchy is a disaster. Okay, that's government's purpose. But man never does seem to remember that. Man gets all excited about it. But look at Daniel 10. Here, Daniel is, has been fasting and praying for three weeks. And he is fasting over the fact that... Uh, what? Uh, I'm sorry, he's been fasting 
and praying for three weeks and an angel, an angelic messenger comes to him and in verse 12 uh, the angelic messenger appears and he says then he said to me do not be afraid Daniel that's the first thing these angels always have to say uh, right off the bat because they're rather uh, frightening appearance oftentimes you'll notice how many of them are glowing well that's what happens when you're in the presence of God you know Moses came down off the mountain what was his face doing glowing that's what happens uh, he says do not be afraid Daniel for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God your words were heard and I've come in response to your words but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days then behold Michael one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left there with the kings of Persia now notice at first he says prince of Persia then he says kings of Persia the kings of Persia are the human beings the prince of Persia is the demonic power that fits this definition in Ephesians 6.12 of rulers you with me? okay the prince of Persia the demonic power is withstanding the angelic messenger it couldn't be a human being the human being wouldn't know the angelic messenger was there so the prince of Persia had withstood him left him there stuck with the kings of Persia now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision pertains to the days yet future and then drop down uh, to uh, let's see verse oh where is it uh, no he says that he's got to go back oh yeah here it is verse 20 then he said to me do you understand why I came to you but I shall now return against and fight against the prince of Persia so I am going forth and behold the prince of Greece is about to come again he's talking about angelic rulers over governments and nations uh, and he's talking about Michael being the prince uh, who was the prince of Israel who is also a high ranking angel uh, an archangel uh, one of the things that I think is important to see here is here the curtain is being pulled back and we get a glimpse of what's going on in the heavens and one of the things that is critical to the issue of prayer uh, and I'm just going to stop here for just a minute if you'll forgive me and camp on this one thing and that is that this angelic messenger is giving Daniel a picture of the future through uh, this portion of Daniel 10, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. In Daniel 11, he says this, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I rose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now Darius was a Persian king. This angelic messenger was sent to Darius to encourage him and protect him. When did he do that? In the first year of Darius. You with me? Alright, go back to Daniel 9. This is a prayer of Daniel. In the first year of Darius, what? In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made O king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed 
as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem naming 70 years and I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting sackcloth and ashes Daniel saw in the prophecy of Jeremiah given in 605 that that Israel would be a prisoner of the Chaldeans for 70 years and then the Persians would come forth and deliver them after 70 years Daniel then began to pray to receive what God's word had said he did this in the first year of Darius what's interesting is in 11.1 of Daniel the angel says in the first year of Darius I came to strengthen him and be a protection to him can I suggest to you folks that the reason the angelic being came to be a protection and encouragement to Darius in his first year is as a direct result of the intercessory prayer of Daniel in the first year of Darius praying that God would bring to pass that which he had prophesied 70 years earlier to return the Jews to Israel. Do you see what power we have with government? Does that excite you at all? I mean... What we know is, is I don't care who the President of the United States is, there are demonic rulers, as we are looking at right here, this first category of demonic power. There are demonic rulers. There is a Prince of the United States. There is a Prince of Moscow, of Russia. There is a Prince of Iraq. There is a Prince of Cameroon. There is a Prince of China. There are these rulers who have authority over governments because Satan is the god of this world. But we believers have the power to intercede and pray for our leaders and God can send his own angelic messengers in there to deal with them. See, we can't deal with the prince of Persia. We don't have that ability. We're flesh and blood. They're not. But we can ask God to send in those who can. And that's what we need to be doing. Oh yes, vote, but stop wasting time criticizing and fussing and yelling and arguing and all that sort of thing. Get on your knees and start using the authority you've been given. Because we have tremendous ability and authority and power with the Lord to actually impact. And actually the scripture tells us that. 1 Timothy 2. Oops, I'm in 2 Timothy. That's why it doesn't say what I thought it would say. 2 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, I urge for that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Connect that up with Daniel 10 and 11, and you will see that powerful things can happen when we do what God tells us to do through Paul in 1 Timothy 2.1. And there are, I'm glad to say, intercessors who are doing precisely that. Rather than and what the Christians got to do, and this is part of the spiritual warfare, what you've got to do is stop looking at the circumstances and look at behind them because the heavenlies is where the war is taking place. Look behind the circumstances of everyday life and see what's going on and use your authority. Does this make sense? Yeah. Everybody with me? Yeah. Okay. You're going to do it, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'll meet, you know, I'll meet you at the next fast. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just kidding you. I mean, I hate fasting. Uh, in my opinion, there are only 
you know, in my age, time flies. I mean, 40 years ago was like yesterday. And there's only three things that slow time down for me. One is being sick. The other is fasting. And the third is babysitting. <laughs> I see some of you aren't laughing. <laughs> now, we are going to have to be prepared to do the things that God calls us to do. Okay, that's, that's kind of a long discussion on rulers. Let's go back. Authorities. Authorities are demons who, impre- who oppress um, humans uh, or possess them. Uh, the demoniac would be an example uh, that Jesus cast legion out of. Uh, they, they, these are the types that possess uh, people. They bring about sin addictions, drugs, sexual immorality. Um, homosexuality would be an issue here. Uh, they're typically these various addictions uh, would uh, uh, generally will have a demonic archetype uh, with them. Uh, it can be bad habit. I don't want to. I don't want to leave the impression that every time you're addicted to something, it's a demon that's got you. Uh, but it can be. Uh, you know, part of the problem is we engage in habits, and sooner or later they can become addictions. But there are certain addictions that the devil is very, very active in and can be involved in. And that's what these authorities do. Homosexuality, impurity, uh, addictions, pornography, all that kind of stuff uh, can be uh, directly from the demonic powers. Number three, the powers of this dark world. Uh, Those are the people that control business, uh, that control culture, uh, the news media, Prince of the Air, uh, the entertainment industry, music, art, fashion, all of those. You see the devil in any of that, by the way, today? Yeah, he's all over the place. Uh, pornography, again, is, is part of that. The fourth one, the spiritual forces of evil. Uh, these are the demonic entities that control central religions, the occult. Uh, they propagate godless philosophies. Um, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, you name it. Uh, all that sort of thing is uh, under that particular level. And I would say apostate Christianity is also uh, under that. Uh, you know, there is, uh, a, there is the, quote, church. Uh, part of the church is becoming more and more apostate. They're denying the power of God. They're denying the basic doctrines. Uh, they... You know, they deny just about anything that has any kind of spiritual value to it. They're big on homosexuality. They're trying to be part of the culture. They think that's the way to reach people. I would suggest to you that is the apostate church. Second Thessalonians tells us there is a time coming when there will be a general widespread apostasy uh, in the church that will prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist. I would suggest to you that this fourth level of demons are the ones that will be involved uh, in handling that. Now, that's, uh, that's kind of a general picture of the way these demons are set up uh, and what they uh, uh, generally are tasked with responsibility uh, of carrying out. Now, let's take a look then uh, at the full armor of God. Now, let me say this to be, first of all, in Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might are two different things. 
strong in the Lord has to do with your relationship with Him, your communion with Him. Part of the things we'll look at with the armor, strengthen that relationship with Him. Uh, we walk in a close relationship, a close communion with Him. You're strong in the Lord. Your perspective is a uh, eternal perspective when you're walking in the Lord. Uh, you understand that the things of this world are temporary. They're going to pass away. Your main focus is on the fact that the new kingdom is coming and His Son is going to reign in that kingdom. And our perspective is, is never mind all the stuff that's so important to everybody. Our main job is to extend that kingdom and strengthen it and get ready for it. And that's the perspective those have who are strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That has to do with both the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but also the realization of who you are, what we were talking about earlier, understanding your weakness when you confront things of the world, understanding your weakness so that His power may be perfected in you. So it's twofold. You with me? We have to have the Spirit in us, strong in the Lord, but we have to have the Spirit come upon us in the strength of His might. Uh, so we are supposed to be walking in both. The problem is so much of the evangelical church seems to have one or the other. But Paul isn't saying, finally be strong in the Lord or in the strength of His might. He's saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You have to have both. And a lot of churches have theologically severed those two. Uh, they're big on the first one, but they say, no, that didn't happen, doesn't happen anymore. Or they're big on this one, but they're weak in the area of understanding the Word of God and walking with Him in power and in communion. It's both. It has to be both. With what we've got coming against us, we have to have both. You know, why would God say, well, okay, now the canon's complete. Uh, we'll get rid of the strength of His might. No! <laughs> we've got to have them both. And then on top of that, we have to walk in the arms. Incidentally, you can always go through the... the, uh, uh, the uh, some people tell me they go through the idea of putting on the armor every morning. That's fine. But I would say to you that once you got it, it's on there all the time. And you don't take it off at night and put it on. It's not the junk. Uh, it, it's there the whole time. And if you take it off at night, what do you get into? I mean... <laughs> So let's look at this full armor. And what I want to share with you in the way I teach this is uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. And Paul, when he is writing to the Ephesians, is uh, in his what we call his first imprisonment. Uh, he, remember he appealed to Caesar uh, in Caesarea Philippi when the Jews tried to accuse him. And they sent him to Rome, and he was there for at least a couple of years. Uh, Paul uh, was, when he was in Rome in his first imprisonment, he wasn't in prison in that sense, but he was in the custody of the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was uh, Caesar's personal bodyguard. Uh, and so they had him uh, uh, in their custody 24-7. In fact, I've told the story before, but forgive me, I'll, I'll do it again. Uh, but uh, they would they would have Paul in four-hour shifts, so he had six different guardsmen every night. At the time of Nero, when this takes place, uh, there were 9,000 Praetorian Guard. 
And I used to think um, poor Paul chained a Roman soldier 24-7 four hour shifts. And I got to thinking about the Apostle Paul and I thought poor soldier chained to the Apostle Paul. Uh, what do you think? Do you think he was witnessing to him? Oh, yes. you think so? <laughs> Philippians 1.12 Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. <laughs> uh, what, you think he's converting them? You think any of those guys are coming to Christ? Yes. Philippians 4. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Especially those of Caesar's household. <laughs> yeah, he's knocking them off. They're sending them to him. And the devil is trying to shut him down. See, that's an example of when the devil, the devil sent him to Rome as a prisoner. The devil was trying to shut him down. He wound up having authority and a witness with people he never would have talked to if he had walked in there on his own power. Uh, the Praetorian Guard were not only being converted, but then they would be shipped out across various parts of the empire on behalf of the emperor, and they carried the disease everywhere they went. <laughs> in the second century, there were whole legions that were Christian. We have no idea how vast an extent Christianity spread uh, across the empire, and the legions began to be the people that were taken. Uh, in 303 BC, uh, AD, under Diocletian, the last great Christian persecution, the entire Roman legion was martyred under Diocletian uh, because there were 6,000 in the legion. Uh, we just have no idea just how extensive it was because, you know, the devil would try to shut them down and the worse he tried, it spread all the more. So what we're looking at here is when Paul is writing uh, to the Ephesians and he is writing the description that we've been reading beginning in verse 14, he's got a living model standing here right beside him uh, when he's writing this. And the Ephesians knew how the Romans used their equipment and their armor because they'd been conquered by them. And so what I found interesting and what I've done are trying to do here is show you you're going to get a little history here but show you how the Romans used their armor and their tactics because it's very interesting the way it connects to spiritual armor and spiritual warfare tactics very similar uh, and so let me tell you just a little bit more than you ever wanted to know about the Roman soldier uh, but I think the Christian soldier uh, is not too far off. First of all, the Mediterranean people were short people. The average height of a Roman soldier was five foot two. Um, anybody here five foot two? Mind standing up? They were not this nice looking, but they were this high. <laughs> okay, now, see, I'm five ten. Dennis, how tall are you? Yeah, why don't you stand up next to me? Now the Germans, the Germans that they fought against were actually this tall. So this is the average Roman soldier. This would be the average German. 
the Nordic people have always been tall people. They've never been short people. Uh, the Romans, the Mediterranean peoples, Greeks, Romans, uh, Spaniards, those folks uh, are short people. Uh, and, they, and it doesn't matter that they're short people because these short people conquered most of Europe, uh, at least up through the Rhine area in Germany and a good portion uh, of Africa, the Middle East, etc. Uh, the Romans, and here's why I'm using these, uh, giving you some information about them, uh, is because the Romans were people who welcomed hardship. The Roman soldier welcomed hardship. He embraced hardship. Uh, he was proud of the fact that he embraced hardship. He ate a kind of a mush made out of a cereal grain. He disdained eating meat. He drank a sour wine that was basically vinegar. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and Jesus said, I thirst, a soldier held up a sponge soaked in vinegar. The soldier wasn't being mean to him. The soldier merely poured him a drink out of his canteen. That's what they drank. Look at what Paul says to Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy. Um, Second Timothy 2.3, he says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy would instantly know what he meant uh, because that's what they did. They suffered hardship and they welcomed it. Um, they enlistment in the Roman army was 25 years. And since in the time of Christ, the average lifespan was 29. <laughs> uh, you know, you spent most of your life in the legions. Uh, you could not marry uh, without the permission of the emperor, although many of them did uh, on the side. Uh, and they were frequently on forced marches. The armor and equipment they carried weighed up to 60 pounds uh, as they were marching. They carried palisade stakes on their shoulders because wherever they bivouacked for the night, they built a camp and they put the palisade stakes all around the camp. So it looked sort of like Fort Apache. Uh, they also dug a trench in front of the palisade and put sharpened stakes up so that they weren't anybody attacked them at night. It was going to be darn hard to do it. How many of you remember the story of Spartacus, uh, the movie, the one with uh, uh, Kirk Douglas? Yeah. Uh, and Tony Curtis. And Tony Curtis there, yeah. Mark Olivier. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you and I watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Hollywood is Hollywood. Woody, Woody Strokes. Yes, one of my favorite guys. <laughs> Hollywood is Hollywood. I mean, you can't go on what they say uh, from a historical standpoint. But one thing they do show that's interesting, the first time the slaves overrun a Roman detachment, uh, they attack them at night. And they absolutely disperse them. And when the commander of the detachment has to appear before the Senate, and explain how slaves managed to overcome them. The first question they asked him is, you did put up the palisade, didn't you? And he said, no. And they said, what? And he said, well, I mean, after all, they were slaves. <laughs> but they always did that. They always made sure 
that they were protected against an attack on the enemy from the enemy because they never knew when that attack might come. And so they were always vigilant. They were never relaxed in that sense. They always made sure uh, that, and I hope the spiritual implications uh, are not too far away on that sort of thing. One of the things they also understood, and I think we Christians particularly need to understand that, the Romans understood that a man's ability to fight uh, hand-to-hand combat, his peak ability to do that was 12 minutes. And so under ideal battle conditions, what they arranged to do was they would advance a line against the opponents. There was a centurion in charge of that line, and at 12 minutes, he would order that line back, and the next line would come up. And so the result was that if there were 10 lines in the legion, the average Roman fought one-tenth of the time, whereas the enemy was constantly coming against them. One of the things that I think the devil likes to do with us is get us so busy and so involved and so under stress that we are easy victims of the temptations he then brings against us. We need to learn how to spell one another and how to walk uh, with not this situation of 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. Uh, because the enemy uses that. Gary's got a course that he teaches on burnout, and it is worth anybody taking to listen to that course because the enemy likes to get us into burnout situations, and when we're burned out, we are really vulnerable. Uh, And you get into this, I can't say no, I'm stuck here, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. The average Roman centurion would say, stop it, you know, because you're not capable of maintaining a constant, constant going. It is important that you have rest. It is even important that you have recreation. So I'm not trying to say that we can't enjoy ourselves from time to time, break off and rest. It's critical. It's part of the attack. The Romans knew it. We ought to know better ourselves and we ought to do that. One of the things that was interesting after we talked about this uh, in the uh, talked about this one time in the church about 15 or 20 years ago, that's how long I've been teaching this thing. Um, They decided that they would take advantage of that principle at the church because one secretary was having to handle all the calls that were coming in every day. And some of those calls can be pretty tough. You got people who are uh, hurting, crying. I mean, you don't realize what a church receptionist gets into sometimes. And so it was draining to do that all day long. And so they started spelling them and making sure that the same person wasn't taking those calls. And they were using that principle of hand-to-hand combat, 12 minutes was it, is the most that they ought to do. They were not spelling them every 12 minutes, but they were using that principle. Okay, now, um, the... um, We have, as I said earlier, we've got God's armor on all the time. The problem is we don't often use it. Um, We need to understand how it works. And one other thing before we start looking at the uh, armor itself, and that is, so often I see this when I see uh, articles or books on the spiritual warfare, and this is the American mind. Paul is referring to this in the plural. 
he is not talking about a single Roman soldier. He is not talking about putting on your spiritual armor as an individual. He is talking to the church as a legion. We are so independent in our thinking. We're all lone rangers. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in the Roman days. It doesn't work that way in the military now. And it doesn't work that way in spiritual warfare in the church. We are interlinked with one another. We are utterly dependent on one another. And we are all on the same team. And we all wear the same armor. And we all function not according as we see fit. But we function as God sees fit. And we function together. I pray for the day when the various churches in any given city will stop treating each other like they're competing car dealerships and start locking arms and saying we are a single legion if you don't have a copier machine come use ours Amen. I mean working together we are against the same enemy we have the same goal we don't agree with each other in areas of secondary doctrine but we do agree with each other on the area of fundamental doctrine and that's all we need to link us together we all know Jesus we all love Jesus I don't care if you're Methodist or Presbyterian uh, if you're uh, Evangelical whatever you are we are all in the same legion therefore we all walk together and we all fight together and the enemy loves it when he gets us fighting one another uh, within uh, the legion itself. Well, one of the things I used to do was be involved in mediation and part of the things that we got into, one team of mediators that we worked into, worked, we worked with was we came in to work in straightening out church disputes. And I'll tell you what folks, you get into a church dispute and the enemy has broken through the shields and they're all dead. And they're more interested in being right than they are the truth. Uh, and that is, uh, that is a major victory when you have a church dispute. Now, I'm not saying there can't be a wrong side and a right side. And I can't, I'm not saying that some people aren't at fault. But rarely in a church dispute are we working and walking in the way Christ has called us to. Okay. Everybody with me? Oh, yeah. I gotta move fast because I've gotta shut down by six o'clock and this will run till eight. I love to scare people. Yeah, we'll be out by five thirty. I'm just kidding. All right, first piece of first belt. Incidentally, I I I messed up. I was gonna give you pictures of this. Uh, I didn't throw them off. I forgot to. I mean, I'll pass them around if you want to look at them. But what I wanted you to do is be able to um, take notes on them. If you want one afterwards, you can come up and I'll give it to you as long as I've got them. But the very... Whoops. What happened? My battery did? Maybe. Swap the battery. Move them around a little bit. Hey, that's better. <coughs> well, I'll talk loud. I mean, I haven't had to talk so loud since I've had this on. So I'll try. Can you all hear me in the back? Yeah. Okay. First, uh, first piece of armor that we have. Notice what he says, verse 14. 
Stand firm, therefore, having gird your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having gird your loins with truth, what he's talking about, and this is the NASB, but some of your translations will say, having put on the belt of truth. Now, the first item that he talks about, are you needing to see me? Oh, okay. We need about 400. Thank you. Everybody want one of these? Does anybody not want one? There's probably, um, I don't know what, maybe 60 here? 75, thank you. Okay. Um, The Roman belt uh, covered, uh, basically covered the loins. Uh, It had, by that, I mean, the Roman word for it, the Latin word is ginculum. And it was, uh, of course, obviously went around his waist. But he had leather strips that came down that covered his loins. Uh, the breastplate rested in part on the belt. Uh, a lot of the Roman armor was utterly dependent on the belt. The difference between that and the spiritual armor is spiritual armor is completely dependent on the belt. If this isn't right, you're in trouble. Uh, and also on his belt, uh, y'all remember, again, you can't go on. Uh, the movies very well, but the recent movies have done a fairly decent job of presenting what they look like. You all remember this leather strips that hang down when you think of a Roman soldier? Uh, you know, below that, that was to protect his loins. But on that belt, he also kept his dagger. He kept his canteen. Uh, he kept, uh, you know, his, uh, if he carried food, sometimes he kept it on there. Uh, they carried a backpack also where they carried a lot of stuff in there. But it was both necessary in combat, but it was also very utilitarian in terms of day-to-day operation. Now, the Roman, the spiritual belt that we put on in verse 14 uh, is also uh, more important, as I just said, and it affects the whole armor. Because if you don't have the truth, you're in trouble. And he calls this the belt of truth. And one of the schemes of the devil if the devil's schemes are basically deception the way in which you overcome deception is by truth I would suggest to you here that the particular truth that we're talking about is doctrinal truth there are two types of truth here there is objective truth doctrinal truth and then there is we'll get to a piece of the armor later called the sword of the spirit which is the Word of God, which is what he says it is, that subjective truth, the sword of the Spirit, you are using specifically in specific situations. But the belt of truth is fundamental doctrine. And one of the schemes of the enemy that is working very well right now is the heresies that keep coming into the church. They always have, but they're coming in again in great power. Universalism right now is sweeping into the evangelical church. The way in which you guard against false prophets, false teachers, and heresy is to have a strong foundation in the fundamental doctrines of the faith. 
And the church today doesn't know what the doctrines of the faith are. So you're extremely vulnerable. And if your doctrine of the fundamental doctrine of who Christ is is faulty, then your breastplate isn't there. Because your breastplate of righteousness is dependent upon your having the truth of the foundation of the faith, which is the fundamental doctrines of the faith. St. Augustine said this. Uh, you got it? Thank you. It's not easy to put on. Yeah, especially when I have it upside down. <laughs> Well, before I quote St. Augustine, here's one of the purposes of, of fundamental doctrine. It's the way in which you know God. The fundamental doctrines are the way in which God in His Word has chosen to reveal Himself. I teach three courses in Grace University. One is the Holy Spirit. One is spiritual warfare, which you're suffering through today. And the other is fundamental doctrine. And that's the least attended course. The fundamental law. Dude, just give me Jesus, not doctrine. If you don't have doctrine, you may not have Jesus. Because there are a lot of Jesus running around that aren't the right Jesus. The enemy spent the first four centuries of church history attacking the incarnation of Christ, the God-man. It's fundamental doctrine. You don't have that down, you're in deep trouble. A uh, tremendous number of cults today attack the fundamental basis of the incarnation. Either he's, he's not God, or just a man, or he's not a man, he's uh, some sort of being out here. And Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, all of these groups attack the incarnation and believe things that are contrary to the incarnation doctrine. They get away with things with Christians because they don't know what they're hearing. Look at Jude says this. Jude 3. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Fundamental doctrine fences out the wolves from the sheep. Now, secondary doctrine fences out sheep from sheep. When I say secondary doctrine, what do I mean? It is not doctrine that is critical to salvation and the atonement. Some people believe you can lose your salvation. Other people believe you can't. That's called security of the believer. Some people believe the rapture is coming before the tribulation. Some people in the middle. Some people after. Uh, there are all kinds of views that are secondary doctrine. Genuine, born-again believers, mature in the faith, can be on both sides of that, those issues. But if you do not believe in the virgin birth, if you do not believe that Jesus was the God-man, if you do not believe that Jesus took our sins upon Him and that He died for us 
and you do not believe the core of fundamental doctrine, and there's quite a, quite a large area of it, then you're not a believer, you're not saved, and you need to get saved. Then you can believe this other stuff completely, and the scripture seems to support both, because they're not critical to salvation and to the atonement and to the fundamentals. And to the extent Christians let them divide that divide them, the devil is only too pleased. But fundamental doctrine, that's different. St. Augustine said this, because fundamental doctrine is the basis by which we begin to know God. Shall I praise you before I know you? No, I must know you before I praise you, lest I praise you amiss. That's the belt of truth. Uh, and that's absolutely critical. And the American church is full of people who know nothing about fundamental doctrine. Especially when Wheaton does a study and concludes that a high percentage of people think that Sodom and Gomorrah were married. <laughs> that isn't even doctrine. That's just biblical ignorance. That's nonsense. Sodom and Gomorrah were not married. Sodom was married to Delilah, right? <laughs> yep, no, that was David. <laughs> and you hear this all the time. Uh, just give me Jesus, not creeds. Uh, you know, just love, not, uh, not doctrine. You can't do it uh, without the doctrine. Because the doctrine is the basis of the application of love. First John says this, Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son a propitiation for our sins. The love of God, which everybody's so big about and wanting to talk about, which they normally use as an excuse for uh, rationalizing their sin, the love of God is defined in Scripture within doctrinal context. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son what? A propitiation for our sins. What is that? The love of God is defined in connection with the atonement of Jesus. So you want to go out and talk about the love of God, but don't give me this doctrine stuff. You are a casualty waiting to happen. And you're going to get led down the road, uh, of, you know, right down the road into the ditch. And I can't tell you how many Christians I deal with who haven't got the slightest idea what they're talking about. And the result is they do not have the belt of truth on because they don't know what it is. And I don't want to do that. It's boring. I don't like to read that. Well, try going to boot camp sometime. That's not boring, but you wouldn't want to do it. But it's absolutely necessary. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. The Word of God, yeah, it's got some parts in it that could be boring. But you can't avoid spending time in it. Let me just give you one example of what I'm talking about. Philippians, I'm sorry, let's start with a P. Psalms 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and in it he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water who bears fruit, whose leaves are green and bears fruit in season. If you don't know the Word of God and you don't engage in it, you're going to fall into the guy that does the opposite. He does listen to the counsel of the wicked. In our day, what is the counsel of the wicked? Well, you just change the channels and you'll hear it one after another. <laughs> read the magazines. Read the newspaper. Your friend at work. Oh, well, I wouldn't put up with that. I'd divorce that stinker. You know, that's, that's the counsel of the wicked. And they don't have enough knowledge to know what the Word of God says about it. So the Word of God is both fundamental in doctrine in terms of the revelation of Him, but absolutely critical in the application of it to be able to live from day to day. That's your belt of truth. And if you don't have that, you don't have the rest of it. Uh, we could stop now. We can still go to 5.30. You want to, I, I got to tell that story. This, I was, I, I was a locomotive engineer for the NSF, and before the election when we lost the House and the Senate, uh, the, uh, one of the guys who knew I was more conservative said, uh, I heard Rush Limbaugh today, and I said, you did? What did he say? And I don't listen to Rush Limbaugh too much. And, he's, and uh, he said, kind of stuttered a little bit, and I said, did you learn anything? He said, no, I just, I just, I just can't stand the sound of his voice. I said, well, I know what you mean. I said, I can't stand the sound of Nancy Pelosi's voice either. And he said, well, who's Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> That helps. Said, well, do this all the time. And somebody else, an older, another, another older engineer, I mean, conductor said, well, I don't know what he means, but do us all a favor, just don't even vote. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of like what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. don't have a... Look, look at what this... Here's the situation in our nation. And here's why the belt is critical. Isaiah 59.12 for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God speaking oppression and revolt conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the streets that's exactly where we are. We don't believe there's absolute truth. And we believe that absolutely. That there is no absolute truth. Uh, it all depends on how you view it. And that's where we are. Truth has stumbled in the street. And uprightness cannot enter. Verse 15. Look at this. Yes, truth is lacking. And he too turns aside from evil. Makes himself a prey. In other words, you try to do right and the wicked around you attack you. In Psalm 1, don't listen to the counsel of the wicked, but it's a progression. You do that, the next thing you know, you're standing in the way of the sinner. You keep doing that, the next thing you know, you're standing, you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. Stand, sit. Walk, stand, sit. That's the pattern. It's the Word of God that cuts that off. And the knowledge of that, and it would be significant and important that you do this daily. And I'll give you an example of how to do it. Do it in the morning. Uh, and if nothing else, I'll tell you what I do. It's not all that I do. I 
It works for me. It may not work for you. I read five psalms every morning. I do it on the day of the month. Today is what, the 14th? So it would be Psalm 14, Psalm 44, Psalm 74, Psalm 104, and Psalm 134. In 30 days you've read 150 psalms. The problem with that advice is that you get in the habit of just trying to make your five. But the Word of God may so arrest you. I tell you, I can't start praying without the Bible open before me. And I, I began to pray with the Psalms in particular in front of me. Because Jesus said, the way you pray is our Father who is in heaven. What does he mean by that? He means before you get started, begin to recognize who you're coming before and who he is and what he does. And so when you start to pray, you begin to say, our Father. And what I start to say is who is omnipotent, who is omniscient, who from age to age is the same, immutable and faithful, uh, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, he is eternal. He is infinite. He is all these things. I focus on those things before I even start to pray. And then, hallowed be your name. May you be glorified in all the answers to the prayers that come and glorified before men. You're not going to be able to do that if you don't understand fundamental doctrine. Because it's in the fundamental doctrine that the characteristics of who He is is revealed. And then the Spirit of God will come in and begin to speak to you and move you. Uh, you know, I've had times where I never got past the first first verse of the first psalm. Suddenly God began to speak. And that's all that counts. It's not necessary to get through five psalms if he's talking. Uh, but you have to start somewhere. I'm not saying stay there, but I'm saying you have to start somewhere. And that's where I would suggest you start uh, if, if you don't have another idea. Now, I've got other ideas, but come up to me if you want to hear them and we'll talk about them. But uh, it, it's just utterly critical with this first uh, particular one. Jesus said this in John 8.31. He says, by truth, and I've, well, he didn't say this. I'm saying it. By truth, we expose the schemes of the devil. And when those schemes are theological... The knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the faith is what exposes heresy and the theological attacks that he's bringing. And his, theologi- his attacks begin with the church primarily theologically. You know, some, somebody once told me, I would have never been a treasury agent, uh, but they tell me that when they teach treasury agents uh, to spot phony bills, they don't give them phony bills to look at, they give them the real thing. And they learn from looking at the real thing and studying that so that when they see a phony, they know from their having looked at the real thing that they're looking at a phony. The same is true with heresy. You know you're looking at heresy because you're so familiar with the fundamental Word of God and the fundamental doctrines of the faith. I know I'm beating uh, over and over and over. Um, and I've gone from teaching to preaching. But it's so critical. Uh, and we are so dropping the ball. And I'm not pointing fingers at you. I mean, I don't have a list of names here that I'm recognizing that I'm trying to preach to you. Uh, I just know in a group this size is a fair guess that some of us fit this. Uh, And I have my days when I fit it. Um, Okay, Jesus says this, John 8, 31. Oh my. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. 
then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free free from what? let me give you a list sin, death Satan's domination free to serve God and worship him free from the world's thinking and control free from the bondage of sinful habits free from the flesh uh, and free from false thinking and from Satan's confusion and he's out there sowing confusion all over the place uh, it, uh, it's just absolutely critical let's go to the next one it's almost time for a break but if you can get past this and come back after the break then we're solid because after I've hit everybody uh, frequently they say well I'm, I'm by, by okay the next thing he talks about is um, and I'm gonna, I've got about five or six pages here having to do with the truth but we'll um, we'll move on to the next one uh, the next one is the breastplate of righteousness uh, the, breast, the Roman breastplate covered the primary uh, organs of the body, the lungs, the heart, uh, the kidneys, the stomach, the intestines. Um, did, everybody's got now got pictures of this. You can kind of see this on the, uh, the right side of the soldier here. Uh, you'll notice that they had shoulder plates uh, and their breastplate was looked like hoops uh, and what they were was thick leather overlaid with metal uh, and the purpose of that was obviously to prevent them from suffering a fatal blow uh, but these shoulder plates right here protected the shoulders uh, and what was critical to the shoulders obviously is the arms and for the soldier the he, with his left arm he held his shield which we'll see is faith with his right arm he held his sword which was the word of God and in ancient warfare they fought, tried to do two things they tried to either sever your arm uh, at the shoulder level or cut the tendons behind your legs, behind your knees so that you couldn't stand up and we'll see what that has to do with the, with the shoes of the gospel uh, but the enemy will try to do the same thing because what he wants to do is either impair your faith, your shield, or ruin your witness. But the primary purpose of this breastplate uh, was to protect uh, from a fatal blow. And um, frankly, a loose-fitting breastplate was very uh, difficult to go into battle with. You didn't have any confidence if your breastplate didn't fit. And if you haven't got the truth and you don't know who Jesus really is and what he really did for you, you may well not have a breastplate that works uh, because the breastplate is what covers the heart uh, and it is our sin that his blood has covered. When it says the breastplate of righteousness, it's not our righteousness. We're covered with his righteousness because God has imputed to us, first, he, justification is this, first, because he bore our sins, he has forgiven us our sin because Jesus paid all that. Remember, then is paying Dale's bill. Uh, Jesus paid all that. But then God wants a relationship with us, not just to forgive sin. So he has imputed us to us the, the righteousness of Christ. We are covered in his righteousness. 
when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Psalm 32 says, How blessed is the man whose transgression is covered. That's what's happened. It's paid for and it's covered. Uh, and if you're not in Jesus, it isn't covered and that breastplate isn't worth anything. And if you don't have the truth, you may not have a breastplate. Incidentally, I would recommend that you not look under the breastplate. You might not like what you see. But he has, he has covered us uh, with his righteousness. And our breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness, is the shed blood of Jesus uh, on our behalf. Uh, and it is the reason why there is no condemnation. The devil's theme, schemes that come against us on this point is that he will try, and we talked about this before, he will try to bring us into condemnation, bring us into guilt, bring us into fear. Uh, and the breastplate of Jesus protects us against that because there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't care if you have a past that stinks. It's paid for. And he has no basis to accuse you. You know, there are two things that we have to deal with most, and the breastplate deals with both of them. One is guilt, and it's characterized by the words, if only. The other is fear, and it's characterized by the two words, what if. And because of the blood of Jesus, guilt and fear have been done away with. Look at Hebrews. What is the ultimate fear, folks? Death. And what lies after it? Hebrews 2. Therefore, verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he must render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Isn't that great? This breastplate, uh, the devil's schemes will come after you in terms of guilt, fear, all these sort of things that are brought against you. What if? What if? What if? Uh, you know, Jesus is really, really faithful to that. Let me just share this with you. This is another. Fear prone. If there's something they can be worried about, I'll find it. Uh, but Jesus has always been so faithful about that. And a story I tell Ruth that's in the class is that. Uh, Many years ago in the Navy, I had to drive up to from Norfolk, Virginia, to a seminar in Washington, and I didn't know where to go, and I didn't know where I was going to stay, and I didn't know where the seminar was, and I didn't know any of that, and I was praying to it. Now, this is a minor stuff, but when you're fear-prone like me, it's a big deal. Uh, and I was praying about it, and the Lord said, Jesus said, don't worry. I have already thrown a bridge across every river that you will come to. But, he said, if you want to worry anyway, 
It's okay because I've still thrown a bridge across the river. <laughs> you see, now you can worry and be fearful. It isn't going to negate what he's done. It just will be unpleasant for you. Now, having said that, and having been very mature in the Lord, I worried all the way up there. <laughs> and I missed some beautiful scenery. If you've ever driven up 95 in Virginia, it's gorgeous. I missed some beautiful scenery. You know what happened when I got there, got into Washington, D.C.? There was a sign that directed me right to where I was supposed to go. I pulled off the freeway. How many of you ever driven on the beltway? It's horrible. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. It's horrible. I mean, you're doing 80 miles an hour on the beltway. It's three lanes. You're in the outer lane. There's a sign on the bridge beside it that says, This lane ends five feet. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever drive in Washington. The only place worse is Boston, but that's another story. I get off, there is the place I'm supposed to go. There is cars parked all around it for blocks. There's one spot open right in front of the front door. I pull in there, I go in, I'm registering, I finish registering, a guy taps me on the shoulder. I turn around, it's a guy I know down in Norfolk. I had no idea he was coming up here. He said, do you have a place to stay? I said, no. He said, we're written this gorgeous home in Fairfax. Why don't you come over here? <laughs> he had thrown a bridge across every river. He meant what he said. Yeah. And I didn't take his word for it, and I worried about it, but he still threw a bridge across every river. You can worry about death, folks, but it's still taken care of. You can be fearful of all these things, but he's taken care of. If you want to walk around with a sense of condemnation and guilt in your heart, you can do that if you want to, but Jesus has already dealt with that. And if you want to pay attention to what the devil's schemes are being used to negate your witness, that's fine, but Jesus has already dealt with that. And that's what breastplate deals with those schemes. Now that's not all the schemes that this breastplate deals with, but that's just an example of how he deals with the schemes of the devil. Okay, we need to take a break. We're a little, a little behind. How about if we take about a five minute break?
As a security guard, I'd be nowhere without my belt. Security guard, that's how I do. Holds my gun, <laughs> pepper spray, my handcuffs, holds everything. All right? I'm sure you probably had your seven pages of notes. So that's how you operate. And you just keep this stuff and you can get the same stuff next year. I'll play the Except I add to it every year. I add it to your bunch of them. Get you something and you get it. No, I've got it for a year. Okay, folks. Time to get back. We need to finish. I've only got you half dressed. Well, my mind was going crazy, and I started reading about the sword of the spirit, and I started thinking about you know the spirit that came out of Jesus' mouth in Revelation. Um, not, not by my might or my power, but by my spirit, said the Lord, and put it in Hebrew, you know, the truth God is sharper than any Absolutely. All right. One of the things, uh, just quickly, uh, on the, the reason the devil attacks you, particularly with condemnation, is if you're not effective in ministering to others if you're under a sense of condemnation. Uh, that's how he shuts your mouth out down, cut, keeps you from uh, wanting to share, because you, he will accuse you. Uh, well, who are you to be talking to them with all you've done and that sort of thing, uh, with the things you think? Uh, folks, we are what we are. We are uh, new creatures, but we still live in bodies of sin. We are not. Uh, we have. Uh, we are not the old man in Adam we were. God took us in our identification out of Adam. He identified us with Christ in His death. We are new creatures. The sin no longer has control of us in the sense that we are no longer under its dominion. It's no longer a statement of I cannot not sin. But sin is not does not reign, but in these bodies sin remains. We are still in bodies of sin, uh, and so we are weak and vulnerable to those things, and it happens. In no way should it ever be uh, used as an excuse to sin. But the devil knows that we are weak, and the devil likes to bring condemnation. And when we uh, submit to the condemnation, we are uh, damaged in terms of being able to minister. Because you know, try it sometime and you're full of guilt. If, if you never had, and that's false guilt. Now there is a true guilt, the guilt where you really committed sin. You need to deal with that and confess it before the Lord and get it dealt with. Uh, 
but the enemy will use condemnation every time to shut you down and that's the reason he does okay quickly and I'm going to try to go quickly uh, because I was just kidding we're not getting out at 530 it's 5 but we, but 5 is 45 minutes from now by my watch <laughs> next one shoes of the gospel The shoes of the gospel of peace. Uh, if you look at your picture there, you'll see the Roman soldier uh, is wearing what we would call sandals. Uh, they are actually wrapped around the ankle. And I'm not sure this picture shows it as accurately as it should, but typically it doesn't. But they were normally wrapped up to halfway up the calf. And the reason for that was to give uh, the soldiers some stability because the weakest part of us, one of the weak areas, I won't say it's the weakest, but one of the weak areas of our anatomy is our ankles. And so the wrapping around the ankles was designed uh, to strengthen the weakness that we have in our ankles. Uh, also the bottom of the soldier's shoe or they called it a boot sometimes had hobnails uh, in, the, in the sole of the shoe all around the not around the edge but thoroughly on the soles of the shoe and the reason for that was to enable them to stand their ground and to grip the ground uh, that they were on one of the worst things that could happen to you in the middle of uh, combat of this type was to lose your footing and to fall. If you, lost, if you fell, you not only were in danger of losing your own life because you were very vulnerable to whatever came down on you, but you could also be a burden and a stumbling block to the soldiers around you. Uh, so they wanted to make sure uh, that they did not uh, fall and they wanted to ensure that they could sort of grip the ground, if you were, with the soles of the shoes that they had on. One area though that it did not work well was when they were fighting inside a city uh, because hobnail shoes don't grip cobblestone very well. Uh, and Josephus tells us that when the J J Romans captured Jerusalem uh, and they were fighting hand to hand in the streets, oftentimes the soldier, the Roman soldier, slipped and fell on the cobblestones uh, because his shoes did not grip it, grip the uh, ground in those conditions, and a lot of them were killed by Jewish defenders uh, when they lost their footing and fell inside the city. So it was very treacherous for them personally uh, when that sort of thing occurred. Um, the uh, uh, spiritual use of the equivalent uh, four times in Ephesians 6. 10 through 14, Paul tells us to stand. Uh, and he is uh, referring to it in that sense, uh, of, in terms of the shoes of the gospel. We are expected uh, to stand. We are not expected as Christian soldiers to flee or lay down. One of them, certainly not to picnic. But one of the interesting aspects to the armor is, you'll notice there is no protection for the backside. We are expected to be standing and facing the enemy. Of course, you can't face the enemy if you don't know he's there, or you don't know you're being attacked by him. So that's the reason for so much of what we've talked about before. 
but what we really he calls it the gospel the shoes of the gospel of peace and what we stand on and the basis on which we conquer is the gospel uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15 1 through 4 now brothers I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word which I have preached to you otherwise you have believed in vain for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and then he goes on to say in verse 14 of that chapter that if Christ hasn't been raised then of course your faith is useless uh, and it's completely in vain Re Revelation 12:11 says that the Christian says they overcame him they're referring to the Christian they overcame him Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony what do they mean what does John mean when he says by the word of their testimony I would say I suggest to you that the word of their testimony is the evidence of a changed life as a result of believing the gospel so the shed blood of the lamb is the gospel itself the means by which we have been delivered from the control of the devil from the dragon and the word of our testimony is not simply the word out of our mouth although it includes that but it would be the evidence of our lives that have been changed as a result of having taken hold of the gospel and it having taken control of our lives um, one of the uh, uh, one of the things I'm fond of saying is that the story I like to tell is the great atheist of the 19th century Thomas Huxley who was a big advocate of evolution uh, and he delighted in debating with Christians publicly uh, sort of thing we see now and he was staying at an English manor house one weekend uh, and on a Sunday morning all of the uh, members of the household both upstairs and downstairs you know what I mean by that um, the, the staff as well as the family were getting ready to go to church well Huxley obviously wasn't going to go to church but he took hold of the hand of a little serving maid who was all dressed up ready to go to church and he said would you do me a favor and rather than go to church would you stay here and talk to me and tell me the basis of your faith and she said oh sir you could turn me upside down uh, in no time at all and he says, no, I'm not going to argue with you. I just want to know the basis of your faith. So she stayed and she shared. And within an hour, he was in tears. Because he could not deny the word of her testimony. Because she clearly was able to display, as a result of the blood of the Lamb, a changed life. And if you can't show a changed life, there's a problem if you went down received Jesus and proceeded to live your life exactly as you've always done you need to go back and check things out because there is a problem because nobody receives the gospel into their heart and turns around and continues to live like they did before it just doesn't happen and if that's the case I would suggest to you humbly that you may not be saved 
that you may be fooling yourself. And I've had a, uh, I have a client of mine um, whom I've represented in some pretty tough cases, and I know what his life is like. And uh, he had a, uh, he's pretty promiscuous and uh, morally. And uh, last year, though, he, uh, he suffered an illness that nearly killed him. He was in the hospital in a semi-coma off and on for 70 days. And after he got out of the hospital and was back on his feet, he came to see me uh, about an issue that I was working on for him. And we got to talk, and I said, I almost died And he said, yeah, I was in the hospital 70 days. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, uh, sure. I said, um, did you know that you were near death? And he said, oh, yeah, I knew it. And I said, does that cause you to think about spiritual things, eternal things? And he said, yeah, but then I knew, I know Jesus. And I said, well, you know, I'm aware of your lifestyle. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be ugly, but I don't think you know Jesus. Because you don't live a life that's changed. And, uh, of course, he didn't like to hear that. And I should have told him that after he paid my bill. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm having to sue him now. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But see, that's, that's so typical of so many. They went down front and they gave their life to Jesus and nothing has changed and they're just as immoral as they ever were or whatever it is they do. But they think they're okay because they gave their life to Jesus. If there's no evidence of a changed life, then they do not stand on the gospel like they think they do. Okay, one other thing too, and that is the feet in Scripture, as well as in ancient days, stand for dominion. In other words, wherever one stands, uh, he possesses that which he is stand on which he stands. In Isaiah, for example, the earth is said to be the footstool uh, of the Lord. Uh, the, in other words, Isaiah 66.1. And what that means is that all of the earth is under his authority. Psalm 24.1 says, For the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. So in Psalm Isaiah 66.1 is saying the same thing. If the earth is his footstool, then it means that all the world is under his authority and his dominion. And frankly, folks, Satan only does what God permits. He cannot go beyond what God permits. And we know that from Job 1, where it says that Job, that Satan came and appeared before God. And God said, where have you been? He says, walking to and fro on the earth. God says, have you seen my servant Job? Satan says, yeah, yeah, he's a big mouth. You know, let me strike him where it hurts uh, and uh, he'll curse you. The Lord said, I'll let you do that, but you may not go. You can go this far, but no further. You see, the, the Lord controls the devil. And if the Lord lets our hedge down and lets the devil afflict us a little bit, it's for a good purpose. God never afflicts his people with evil in mind. Uh, he never lets the devil have at us a little bit without using it to purify us and to make us stronger. But the devil himself is under God's authority. He cannot operate. He, he tries to, but he can't operate outside of God's authority. Remember earlier this morning, we read from Ephesians 1, 20 and 22, where we saw that when God raised Jesus from the dead, 
that he placed all rule and authority under his feet, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That is an ancient military term. Whenever two armies fought with one another, or two kings fought with one another, the king that was defeated, if he was still alive at the end of the battle, was brought subjected in subjection, in chains, to the victorious king. That king was then made to bow down with his head on, his, on the ground, and the victorious king would put his foot on his head. That symbolized dominion. That symbolized, symbolized that he now has authority, uh, that he has been conquered. Uh, the Romans one time suffered a tremendous defeat in 314 B.C. at the Battle of Caudine Forks. What happened was the, the victorious army set up what we would, you know, remember, have you ever done limbo? Yeah. They set up what was the bar, they called it. The Roman soldiers were stripped, and then the bar was held at chest level, and they were forced to then each one pass under the bar. It was humiliating, but it symbolized the fact that the victorious king had dominion over them. And so when he talks about God placing everything under Jesus' feet, he is talking about the fact that everything is under his dominion. Why then does Paul talk about the shoes of the gospel of peace? Because the gospel conquers wherever it goes. It has dominion over everything. It is the answer to all of the world's problems. And the true gospel will conquer wherever it goes. There are those that will resist it and refuse to accept it. But the ultimate result for them is not pleasant. And it was their choice to resist but the result is eternal darkness. And the gospel always conquers. Even though at times it doesn't look like it's conquering. But look at the Iron Curtain. Who's, who's, is the gospel in Romania? Is the gospel in Russia? Is Ceausescu in Romania? Mm -mm. No. They can come against the gospel. They can rail against it. They can kill its adherents. They can do whatever they want to. The gospel always conquers. And that's why Paul calls it the shoes uh, of the gospel of peace. Because it is that on which you stand and it is that on which you conquer. And it is the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony from the gospel that defeats the dragon, Revelation 12, 9. Okay? Let's look at the next one as I'm going on shield of faith. One of my favorite ones. There you've got a picture of the shield. That's a fairly accurate picture, although they were actually a little longer than that. Uh, the Roman word for shield is scutum. How many of you are delighting in the new Latin you're learning? <laughs> you know, at one time, the only Latin I knew was etu brute. <laughs> and I thought that that was... Caesar's answer to Brutus' question, how many pizzas did you have? Caesar. <laughs> that wasn't? Scutum, um, in other words, this shield he's got, was called by them scutum, and it was the same word for door. And it was rectangular. Uh, it was made of planks and layers of leather across the planks and then more layers and then more layers and numerous layers of leather across the planks 
and then it was covered with a layer of metal and embossed uh, with metal. You could normally tell from the shield, uh, from the insignia on the shield, if you were an opposing force, you could tell which legion you were opposed to or was opposing you because you could tell on their shield which particular legion this was. The equivalent today, or certainly during the Civil War, I don't think it's quite so today, would be regimental battle flags. It would be the same thing in a sense. Um, the um, uh, shield was four feet long, two and a half feet wide. And uh, the uh, uh, Romans had a particular uh, formation. They didn't always use this but it was called the tortoise formation or the turdo in Latin for, for tortoise. And what it meant and the way it worked was this. In a block of troops, uh, the Roman uh, uh, front line would bring their shields together and Josephus tells us at Jerusalem outside the walls they would lock their shields. And this was most common when they assaulted a fortification but they were capable of locking their shields. Then the men in the rows behind them, because these were four-foot shields, could place it over their head and cover their own head, but cover the head of the man in front of them. Uh, the people on the sides had hung their shields on the side, and the men on the back row were able to hang their shields on the back of their, of their armor uh, there. They, the value of locking shields and holding this over their heads was they protected each other not only from firing missiles but from rocks and hot oil and things like that that would be poured down on them. When a Roman legion was advancing in the field uh, before they got within striking distance with their short swords they frequently encountered heavy archery and uh, they would encounter uh, um, javelins and what they called a ballista, which is kind of the Roman version of artillery, which would be a giant crossbow capable of throwing a huge bolt at them. If a soldier took a hit on a shield and was stunned, uh, oftentimes if the shields were locked, the men on either side could hold him up while he got his legs back. Uh, the result was they all got to the battle line. Not all of them were conscious when they got to the battle line, but they all got to the battle line. Um, if you've seen, occasionally the movies will try to reproduce this. The best show that I've seen, the best movie I've seen that reproduces it, I'm not necessarily recommending that you see this, is a movie called The Eagle. It came out a few years ago. That's probably the best example of the turquoise formation functioning as they plow through an enemy line. Some of their own men have been captured. What they do is they plow through this enemy line and they grab the men that have been captured and bring them inside the shields. That's a tremendous picture of the way the thing worked. Uh, the Emperor Nero, for example, uh, would, uh, and I believe this was Nero, it's been so many years since I've read this, I've kind of forgotten which emperor it was, but he would test his legions in the tortoise formation by having them take that formation, shields above their heads, and he would drive his horses and chariots across the legions. Uh, like that, uh, to test the strength of his legions going across that Tartarus formation. Um, what Paul says, and you'll notice that Paul's example that he uses here in talking about the shield of faith, is he brings it right down to why the Romans used it. And he says that you might uh, notice what he says, having shot us uh, see 16 in addition, 
taking up the shield of faith with which you're able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil and that was not uncommon uh, for that sort of thing to happen um, they uh, 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 and one other couple of other things and that is uh, that the uh, Romans were as I said earlier were smaller than their normal most of their adversaries but the secret of their ability to conquer uh, larger adversaries like for example the Germans uh, was the fact uh, of their unity and this shields gave them part of that unity the enemy generals that were successful and in the early days of the empire there were darn few of them but the ones that were successful in defeating Roman legions did so by breaking those shields up and breaking the unity of the legions uh, and that prevented that unity from coming together. Their, their short sword, which we'll look at in a few minutes, uh, was the equivalent of the M1 or the M16 today. I mean, it was state-of-the-art. Uh, and when they got up close with those short swords, uh, they did incredible damage. But they needed to make sure that they got up close to those short swords uh, to the enemy so they could use uh, their weaponry. Uh, the analogies to the shield of faith are terrific. Uh, it's, uh, the it's almost not an analogy. Um, uh, what we've got to do, folks, is one of the ways that we maintain um, unity is the shield of faith. Uh, again, what I said earlier, we've got to stop. We've got to start locking our shields and stop seeing ourselves in competition with each other and one of the ways we do that is we walk transparently with one another we stop pretending we're real spiritual if we've got problems we've got people that know us well enough that we can share the problem with us without sense of judgment coming from them and again that's another major problem the american church has because our communication has so actually divided us rather than brought us together uh, that we don't have intimate friends. I tell you what, you can't get an intimate friend on Facebook, uh, you know, or Twitter. Uh, there's so much more to communication than what you get with Twitter. Uh, and the problem is, is we can now communicate without seeing each other's face. That's disaster. Uh, I was in a legal seminar back in April. We had two different lawyers at two different times who were speaking independently of each other both made the comment that the jury trial is coming to an end as an institution and there are a number of reasons for that and they're not they're not uh, important to know here except one and that is the result of this communication by Facebook Twitter all this other stuff has created in people a lack of ability uh, to sympathize with others and so you know, now it's getting to be that they don't want juries uh, because the average juror not only does not want to be there, which of course that was the way it was 30 years ago as well, but in those days they don't want to be there, they had other things to do, but they saw it as a duty and they were willing to serve. But today so many of them not only don't want to be there, but they don't give a rip about your problem and they may just take it out on you regardless of what the facts and justice may say uh, because the technology is driving us apart uh, and it's been going that way since the late 19th century and it's only getting worse communication is not making us closer 
it's driving this apart. Now it's exciting uh, that somebody can be in China and Skype with you or uh, text you here in Texas. And that's fascinating and amazing. But at the same time, tremendous interaction is lost by communicating in that way. And so it's very difficult to have people that have a transparency with one another because they have uh, they have a connection in their spirits with one another and they have an intimacy with one another. Uh, the other problem is, is in, uh, in the first century church, uh, the Christian did not work in Ephesus and live in Philippi. Uh, they lived together in Philippi. You could walk through Philippi in a day. They were artisans and and uh, uh, merchants and that sort of thing and sh- and oftentimes they lived on the shops above their stores and uh, they saw each other on a regular and a weekly basis and so intimacy was not a problem they have we have the problem in fact we're having to get groups together for the purpose of intimacy and that makes it more difficult when your purpose for getting together is intimacy oftentimes it doesn't come that way intimacy is a product of something else it is a product of striving together for a goal of some sort. Uh, and so it's not it's difficult to be transparent. It's difficult to lock shields when you're not transparent with one another. But even so, folks, even when in, in grace here, you will hear that phrase a lot, I think. How many of you have heard the phrase locking shields? Okay. We'll use that from the pulpit. When somebody is having a problem, somebody is suffering an illness, somebody is going through grief, somebody is really taking a hit, they will ask for prayer and the way they'll say is, I need somebody to lock shields around me. That's exactly what they're referring to. They're referring to the believers coming around them, supporting them, upholding them, praying for them, comforting, working, that sort of thing. That's locking shields. And I'll tell you, when the world sees that, that sort of thing the world wants. That's what they're looking for. We don't need to go out there and be relevant to them. We need to express the love of Jesus in locking shields with one another and lock shields with them if they need it and reflect the joy there is in walking with Christ. That's what brings the unbeliever in. That's what's relevant. St. Augustine said, if you try to be relevant to the world, then the world will define relevance. But if you walk with Christ, the world will be a path to your door because they want to see what it is you've got. You with me? Locking shields is, is tremendously important. Now, the shield of faith, and I've got to move on, but let me just give you, um, faith, folks, is a gift from the Lord. You don't work up faith. He gives it to you. Uh, Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of the faith God has given you. Hebrews 12.2 Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In other words, one of the things that Jesus does is he gives you the faith you have. Then he proceeds to perfect the faith you have. How does he do that? He brings you through one trial after another. And you find out as you go through one trial after another that he is faithful. And as you find that out, your faith is strengthened. It's sort of like the way the Romans built their shields. One layer of leather on top of another. As you go through a trial and you discover that Jesus is faithful, that's another layer on your shield. 
You go through another trial and you discover that Jesus is faithful. That's another layer of leather on your shield. Some of us have got some pretty heavy shields. Some of us have got some pretty light shields. That's okay because when we lock shields, uh, everybody is supported. Uh, When he does what he does and he perfects our faith, one of the things he will do, folks, he will engineer our trials in order to reveal himself to you. So I would suggest you get into a trial. Don't say, what are you doing or what are you going to do? Simply say, Lord, show yourself here. Uh, because what he is doing is he is perfecting your faith. Look at First Peter. Verse 6, in this, 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may found to be resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Uh, Now, uh, I'm going to have to skip a number of things in here. but let me just close this one, this section out. There's four things that will damage your faith. Four things that will abate it or hinder it. And this is why I said the enemy will attack the shield, attack your your armor, try to hit your shield on the on the shoulder part. Uh, there are four things. One, unforgiveness. Now I will tell you that we could spend an hour on each of these four. We're going to spend 30 seconds. One, unforgiveness, resentment, anger, hate, that sort of thing. Two, fear, lack of trust. Six, three, I mean, guilt, sin and condemnation. You see where he's been coming against us on these things before, the other stuff we've been talking about? With the breastplate of righteousness and that sort of thing. Why? To negate your faith. Four, frustration. Now that gets a lot of us. Grumbling and complaining. I uh, don't like where I am. Get me out of here. Uh, I'm not pointing fingers at you. There's four fingers pointing back at me. I mean, I, oh, I can't tell you how long I've said, God, get me out of here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. No, 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 no. And, uh, you know, it's frustration. It's grumbling and complaining. If God is sovereign and you're where you are, He knows you're there. He's got you there for a reason. Ask Him though, if you don't want to be there, it's alright to ask Him to remove you. And if you have a chance to go, go. But if you don't have a chance to go and you can't get out and you've asked Him to remove you and you hasn't, and I'm not talking about sin, He will always remove you from sin. Well then don't be frustrated about it. Ask Him to reveal Himself and what He's doing. Okay, sword of the spirit, and I'm moving fast. Roman short sword was, as I said earlier, the M16 of its day. Uh, It conquered the known world uh, of their time. Uh, It was a double-edged blade. It was pointed. It could thrust and cut. Now, that seems obvious to us, but it wasn't in those days. Uh, Some of the swords the uh, other side, the other armies used, could thrust but not cut. Well, they could cut but not thrust. 
but the Romans came up with a short sword that was able to both it was double edged so it could slash but it was pointed so it could stick <laughs> now you'd say well duh but <laughs> apparently well duh didn't come across to a lot of people it was the Romans that developed it uh, it was um, about 20, 18 to 24 inches uh, the blade was uh, this is interesting to me the hilt was made of bone usually and the bone had uh, grooves cut in it and the reason why the grooves were cut in it was for the purpose of grip uh, also on the hilt normally a lot of the soldiers had two leather straps and the reason those leather straps were on the hilt was going into battle they would tie the sword to their wrists and one of the reasons for that and I hope you're seeing some of the spiritual analogy to this just as we talk one of the reasons for that is to come out of a battle without your shield or without your sword could be defined as crucifix uh, as a desertion and the penalty for desertion was crucifixion so if they came out of the battle without their sword they didn't have their right hand either and that was a good defense uh, you know, obviously if they lost their hand they lost their sword uh, and so they tied their swords to their wrist to make sure they didn't lose them uh, now the difference between the belt of truth and the word of God the sword is the belt as I said earlier is the fundamental objective fundamental doctrines of the faith the sword though is what we use to deal with not only Satan but also when we're witnessing or in our daily lives or the things we're doing. We've got the objective use, the belt, subjective use, the sword. I would recommend, if you know the Word of God well enough, that when you are witnessing to people, you use it. Uh, because that's, that's the sword. Uh, I could give you several examples. I would usually try to use God's Word. Uh, these days now when I witness I, I usually ask people questions rather than uh, try to preach at them uh, are you interested in spiritual things uh, if they say no a lot of times that's the end of it but sometimes I don't let it go at that I'll say well what do you think happens after death um, you know but if they're interested in spiritual things well what do you believe in and they tell me oh that's interesting what do you base that on uh, you know, what do I base that on? Yes. What What's the authority for what you just said? Well, they haven't thought that out <laughs> nine times out of ten. And we go through. Well, why would God let you into heaven if you died? Oh, because I've done a good job and been sincere and tried to. Oh. Let me ask you a question. If you If that was not true, would you want to know that? Most of them will say yes. And then at that point, it's wide open door. <laughs> And what I will try to do is I'll have, usually have a Bible with me. And, you know, you want them to read something like, uh, you want them to know Romans 3.23. Um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you can do it, hand them the Bible and say, you see where it says verse 23 right there? Yeah, would you read that? And let them read it. And I say, okay, how do you take that? Uh, I've never had any of them not figure out what that meant. You read it to them and they say, well, that's your interpretation. You know, but the word of God is powerful and sharper Hebrews 4.12 than any two-edged sword 
able to pierce between uh, soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And I can recall uh, having, uh, when I was in the Navy, I was a legal officer in the Navy, and I had a sailor in front of me who had a lot of problems, and we were about to send him to a court-martial. And we got into a discussion that he was an atheist. And I will say this, it's, a lot, and it's, it's no bravery on my part. It's easier to witness the guys when you've got bars on your collar and they got straps on their sleeve. Although some of them will say, yes, sir, you're right, sir. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, sir. Can we talk about something else, sir? Uh, All right. But he and I were talking, uh, and he got more and more hostile as we talked, respectfully, though. And um, I finally, I wouldn't get anywhere. And uh, before I could terminate the conversation, the phone rang. Was a Christian friend of mine on the phone and I've forgotten what he said he asked me something I just remember saying I'm done with what I'm doing here and then I quoted to him a verse the guy I was talking to on the phone I quoted a verse to him to this day I don't remember what it was and I hung the phone up and turned around and this guy's in tears and that verse had absolutely cut him into and I have no idea why but he came to Christ five minutes later. And I heard him during uh, out in the hall when he was waiting to be brought to court-martial. And he was standing with other sailors who were in like trouble. And I heard him out in the hallway witnessing with him. And I had a good friend of mine that I went to high school with. Into reincarnation, whole nine yards. Had me over the day the, for dinner one night. Uh, I was on my way to the, I was just going into the Navy, had been in training, I was headed to Norfolk to report in on my first duty station. He and his wife had me over for dinner. They were so excited because I was going to Virginia Beach, home of Edgar Casey. And they wanted me to be sure I went out there and looked at that. And I said, what I said about reincarnation. He was trying to explain to me that the Bible thought reincarnation, you know, because they thought John the Baptist was Elijah. I said, I said Jack. I don't prove that the Bible's teaching reincarnation because it says the people thought that. He said, oh yeah, reincarnation is simple. The Bible's really pushing reincarnation. I said, how do you deal with Romans 9.27? He said, what is that? I said, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to judge. Oh, well, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> well, what does it mean? Well, I don't know, but it doesn't mean that. <laughs> well, Went off to the Navy, came back, 20 years later, ran into Jack. In the interim, he had become a believer. Not because of me, but he'd become a believer. And we had a good time in fellowship together. And then he said, you know what, that night you were over to my house so many years ago and quoted Hebrews 9.27. I could never get around. And how did Jesus deal with Satan in the wilderness? It is written. It is written. It is written. Now there is the thrust of the sword of the Spirit. It is being used in a subjective situation. Jack, how do you deal with Romans, uh, Hebrews 9.27? What's not 9.27? Is appointed unto man wants to die. After that, the judgment. You would have thought from the conversation that it had no impact. It did. 
The Word of God will absolutely cut them in two. You want to make sure when you share it, you're not a jerk. We don't hit them over the head with the Bible. We don't grab them by the shirt and shine the flashlight in their eyes. Some of the witnessing I see makes me cry. Because we're not sharing out of love. We're sharing out of self-righteousness and judgment. If that's the way you share the gospel, shut up. Your lives need to first display the truth of the gospel. Remember, defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. Your lives need to display it, then your words share it. But use the word of God. If you don't know the word of God, you can't use it. But uh, that's what Paul is saying, the sword of the Spirit. The enemy has no defense against the sword of the Spirit unless he's coming against somebody who doesn't know how to use it. Of course, those that don't know how to use it do more damage than harm. But you wouldn't turn a gun, you wouldn't turn a 357 Magnum over to a three-year-old, would you? But there are a lot of three-year-olds sitting in the pew when it comes to the sword of the Spirit. Okay, one other thing and we'll be done. And that is the helmet of salvation. Incidentally, the sword of the Spirit is your offensive weapon. The shield of faith is your defensive weapon. Although I will admit the Romans used the shield offensively as well. You got too close to the front of one and he hit you with the shield. Then while you were recovering from that, he would stick you in wherever with the sword. Okay. Helmet of salvation. Roman helmet made of iron. Metal plate that came down protected the neck. Uh, Side plates uh, protected the cheek. There was a metal plate. The metal plate that protected the neck was in the back. Uh, You want to go take a look at, say, um, the movie that Mel Gibson made, uh, The Passion of the Christ. Those soldiers are pretty accurate. Now that helmet, the helmets they're wearing, that's what they wore in those days. Their helmets, incidentally, changed from century to century, just like American uniforms do. You know, World War II soldier doesn't look anything like one who fought in the Civil War. Well, theirs were the same way. But in the days of Christ, in the days when Paul wrote, go take a look at the Passion of Christ. That's a pretty good picture of what they look like. Um, they protected the brain, the eyes, and the ears. Uh, the helmet of salvation, folks, protects our minds. Salvation is taken in through the mind, it grips the heart, and then turns around and transforms the mind. Um, The mind is the gateway to the heart. Uh, The gospel comes through the mind, it's the gateway to the heart. Once the heart's change, then it will transform the mind. Of course, the transformation, the gripping of the heart by the gospel is frequently, instantly, the transformation of the mind in return can be a process. Um, the heart controls the mind. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And Luke 6.45 says, The good man brings good things, and out of the good things stored up in his heart, uh, and the evil man brings evil out of the evil stored in his heart, for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. Uh, 
Ephesians 4.17 says, Do not be like the Gentiles walking in the futility of their minds. Their minds are futile because all they think about is the things of this world. They do not have the eternal perspective we talked about before. So what's important is to pile up everything for now. Uh, And again, we could go into that for about an hour. Uh, Satan's main attack begins in the mind. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set up your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And here's how important the mind is to the Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, he blinds the mind. 2 Corinthians 3.14 he hardens the mind. 2 Corinthians 11.3 he corrupts the mind. Titus 1.15 he defiles the mind. 2 Corinthians 4.8, he confuses the mind. Luke 12.29, I'm sorry, James 1.8, diverts the mind. Hebrews 12.3, discourages the mind. 1 Timothy 4.12, deceives the mind. Ephesians 4.17 and 18, darkens the mind. You get the impression that the enemy knows that the mind is significant. The human mind is the single greatest creation of God. It is absolutely amazing. Uh, and the enemy knows it. Uh, if your faith is limited to mental assent, then uh, the gospel is not rooted in your heart. Uh, but the mind is fixed only if the heart is immovable. Uh, one of my favorite stories, and I'll quit, uh, because the enemy will put things in your mind. Second Corinthians 10 5 talks about in 4 we read it earlier he talks about the fact that we our warfare is not waged with weapons that are human but spiritual weapons and then in 5 which we didn't read says we take every thought captive to Christ and uh, my uh, when I was in high school as a sophomore I took world history now a lot of world history has happened since then but when I was 15 <laughs> Well, here's what I say. True history is up to 1800. Everything since then is journalism. (laughs) But my my world history teacher, uh, and I love world history. That's what I majored in college before I went to law school. I love history. And uh, my world history teacher brought, now this is 1960. She brought, and I'm saying this because of who she brought, she brought her uncle who had fought in the World War I in the American Empire. And he told us when we were studying World War I, he told us a few things about it. One thing that I've never forgotten he talked about was the. Uh, Right after American troops had come into the trenches, they were moved into the trenches where they were right next to the British. And they were a stone's throw from the German lines. And uh, literally, a more accurate way of saying it was they were a grenade's throw from the German lines. The German hand grenade in those days, and I think it's the same in World War II, looked sort of like a potato masher. That's what they called it. World War One, they could be a little unstable. You were never sure when it went off once you activated it. It could go off 
right away, which was unfortunate for the one playing the trouble. Or it could delay for a while. And he related the story that right after they first came into the trenches one evening, they're all standing in line there against the trenches, uh, and they're right next to the British, and a German potato masher falls down into the trench. And the Americans start scattering. And one British Tommy, as they call him, picks up the potato masher and looks at it and says, Oh, now that was inhospitable. Close <laughs> <laughs> it back. The Americans start filtering back in. A few minutes later, potato masher falls down in the trench. The Americans start scattering. The Tommy picks it up and looks at it. Says, you know, I wonder if it's the same one they threw a minute ago. He said, I've got an idea. Let's mark it. He takes his bayonet out, scratches on it, throws it back. The Americans start coming back in, and here comes potato masher. Tommy picks it up and says, Yep, same blooming one. <laughs> now, I suppose eventually it went off. On which side it went off, I don't know. Hopefully in the middle of no man's land it went off. But let me suggest this to you folks. The devil cannot read your mind, but he can put thoughts in your mind. And those thoughts are often like a potato masher. You let them sit there and they'll go off. You got time to get rid of them. You take them captive to the Lord Jesus. But you sit there and you think about it. You're going to have a problem. Now, I'm not talking about everything. But you, does everybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, so, yes, sir. Uh, I just want to ask, where is that? Potato measure? No. Third Timothy 9. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, well, I don't know that I can say that that's in Scripture. Uh, he's not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. Uh, but the devil's demons spend enough time with you. Uh, they can tell from your looks and where you're going and what you're looking at. They can give an idea, get an idea of what's going through your mind. Uh, but I couldn't quote the Scripture on it. But they're not on mission. The devil's not on Nobody's on mission. Only God. Uh, you know, uh, Psalm 139, speaking of God, says, You know my thoughts. You know, uh, and he does. And thank goodness he does. There's sure. nothing about us he doesn't know. With regard to reading minds or whatever, scripture we're always taught how to speak. So if the enemy can read our mind, we can just think that he'd be God. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah, you don't, when you're dealing with him and you're taking authority on him, you don't think in Jesus' name. Yeah, you take authority over him verbally. Well, guys, we got to quit. It's a little after three. I thank you for coming. Let me pray for you. Uh, I would pray that this has been effective for you. Uh, I hope you are uh, fired up in a way to doing some things that you haven't been doing. If you have been, then you'll be encouraged to continue. Heavenly Father, we ask for the blessing of the Holy Spirit now to rest on each one here. 
and we ask that that blessing would extend to every family member that's represented here. And Father, I thank you that you have given us the power, the authority, the ability to deal with the enemy. May he be exposed continually that we may conquer him in Jesus' name. Lord, we are not strong enough, but you are. Lord, I pray for each one here that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in unity with you. And I ask you to protect them and their families against the attack of the enemy. We ask it all in Jesus' name for your honor and glory. Amen. You're dismissed.